So, uh, good morning. Uh, happy New Year. Happy 1980, Dan. I'm so excited. So excited, right? 1980. We're, uh, it's back to the future. Anyway, welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And where are we from today, Dan? We are live from Elsong Tavern in Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate. Why would we be there? Well, you know, I was, I've been wandering up and down the Sword Coast, and uh, we just sort of popped into this place. But we're there, of course, because we're very fortunate to have today Ed Greenwood on the show. Yes. Good morning, Ed. How are you today? I am fine. How are you, gentlemen? We, we, are, we are great. <laughs> we are so honored to have you. And first off, um, you know, for your fans and for people who've been watching you, how are you feeling? How are, how, how's your recovery going? I know a lot of folks were very curious about that. Well, I seem to be starting to be myself. I, I still have great chest pains and stuff, mm. but, but my heart apparently is fixed. I'm still at home recuperating. Congratulations. I'm sure that was a, a tremendous, scary, and, and challenging time the last months or whatever it was. I don't know the full thing, but we're so glad and thankful that you're feeling better. So, And on the, on the men's, uh, I'm sure your fans are looking forward to... Seeing again, we've, we've been following you on Twitter and watching it, and we're so glad that uh, things are good. So I'm glad of that. And also, I've uh, seen recently, I'm sure a lot of folks know that yesterday was the passing of Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, and I know you'd put some poignant tweets out there. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what Rush meant to you and uh, you know any experience you have uh, with that? Sure. Uh, I went to a... Um a junior high in high school called Don Mills Junior High slash Don Mills Collegiate Institute, which was just a high school in Don Mills, Ontario. Um, Don Mills was situated in what was then the city of North York. Um, Rush was formed at Northern Tech, some 10 miles to the west of us in North York. And <clears throat> this was in the um, 1970s. And the year before I entered high school, they did away with the dress code. You know, the all male students had to wear suits with ties. Right. The girls had their skirts measured to be so many inches below the knee and stuff like that. That that ended a year before I started. Okay, so it's that long ago. So they were still very repressive in a lot of ways. And one of the things they did is... Oh, Northern Tech, which, you see, most of the, the high schools specialized in something. They were arts or whatever. Northern Tech had a huge shop. So if you wanted to learn how to fix cars, that was the high school. Okay. So, so when Rush formed at Northern Tech, a lot of the other principals said, oh, good. So somebody has a high school band, a rock band, as opposed to our orchestras and, and bands that, you know, were students badly playing the, the school anthem or whatever, you know, and, and mangling God Save the Queen in O Canada whenever we had it, you know. Um, aside from that, um, they said, oh, good, this high school has a band, so none of you can have bands. They'll just tour. Oh, interesting. So they did. So, you know, once or twice a year, Rush would play in my cafetorium. My, like, our, our oh. cafeterias had an sure. auditorium at one end, and we also had our exams there. They, they just flipped the tables into... And, and sure enough, um, 
we would have a show with Rush. Now, Neil wasn't their drummer at the beginning. Right. Um, and I he's can still guy. remember. Yeah, he's the new guy. That's and right. I still remember when, when Fly. <laughs> yeah. And um, Fly by Night came out and we all rushed to buy our copies. And oh, it was, it was great fun. So to me, Rush is my youth. It's when my knees still worked. It's when I was a teenager, you know, yeah. all that fun stuff. Um, and it takes me right back there. Um, Getty Lee um, telling our stage and lighting crew that if they did it properly, he wouldn't blow half the board when he when they, he just started up. <laughs> and and our, our local uh, music teacher, Mr. Kravitz, who was, you know, long-haired European, um, loved beautiful cello playing and didn't have much use for anything else, um, describing Getty's singing voice as gargling with razor blades. Ah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Something he kept for a long time, right? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, we were all stunned to hear the news. Um, you know, uh, and it's funny you mentioned, because synonymous in the 80s, uh, that was the if you were in the jazz band, they'd, one of them would try to play YYZ, uh, and and I, I went to football games with my kids, and sure enough, when the band was getting bored, they would try to play YYZs because that was kind of the rite of passage if you were in a high school, uh, jazz band or whatever to play some kind of Rush. The bassist would start playing it, and um, you know it is part of our youth too. Uh, this last concert I went to see with them was in 2013, and I saw them in 1983, so I saw them. Twice in thirty years, so it's uh, um, you know just shocking news. So again, thank you for your for your thoughts on that. Oh no problem. I I I grew up in a golden time. The Rolling Stones played El, the El Macambo, which was a a tavern with that could fit seventy people in it. Wow. Um, Genesis would come and Max Webster would open for them, and then there were all the Canadian bands, April Wine, Guess Who. And, you know, they would regularly make the rounds. So I, I grew up in a golden age without realizing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can recall Led Zepp coming to play and them just walking through the crowd. of wait. We were all lined up to get in. You know, we had our tickets, physical tickets, none That's of yes. this e-stuff, uh, lined up at gates to get in because that was um, at, at, the, at the X, the Exhibition Stadium. And... The limo pulled up, and the members of Led Zepp got out, and they just walked through the crowd, shaking hands and saying hi and saying, I hope you enjoy the show, and then went through the gates and started the light. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> it yeah, was, that would, ne it was that would never happen life. today. Yeah, exactly. No. And, yeah, now it's, uh, it's all corporate and all, you know, so, yeah, we're, uh, you know, I think that's some of the things that, really bring up how the game that we all love, uh, you know, it's that time frame of freedom and expression and, and almost kind of coming up with it. And so really that's kind of the first question we have. I know you've probably answered this a number of times, but the origins, you know, you were very prolific before even in writing, and I know Dan has some follow-up on that. Uh, just, you, you obviously were an avid reader, have continued to be. Um, so how did you get into fantasy and then start thinking about creating a world? Maybe kind of your origins of it. Okay, um, flashback to around 1965. Um, I'm a young kid. And um, my mom has just died of cancer, so I'm very lonely. Oh, I'm so sorry, yeah. 
that's okay. You know, it, that's what happens. Yeah. Um, and, and I was raised by my, my grandmothers and some maiden aunts, notably Aunt Clara. But my father, who was, uh, he, in his grief, he threw himself into his job. And he worked for uh, NATO and NORAD and missile defense systems and stuff. So um, he was away a lot. And he had a den full of books. And like all book collectors and avid readers who don't have enough space at home, he made his own bookshelves and crammed everything into them by size. Like the shelves behind you, gentlemen, he would look at them and say, no, 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 no. And he would rebuild them so that individual cubbies were just the right height. Wow. Or a number of volumes, so he could cram them in, and therefore they were by size, and they were cheek by jowl. So, a first edition Lord of the Rings in hardcover was right next to the Robe by Lloyd Douglas on one side, and the High White Forest by Ralph Allen, a novel of the Battle of the Bulge, which I loved as a young kid because it has two and a half pages of a scene where. All these German citizens are are being taught to say the F word so they can go go behind American lines in the Battle of the Bulge and pretend they're Americans. And the SS the SS guy has come to inspect the class and the teacher is showing off her best uh, F-bomb speakers and they are totally mangling the F-bomb for two and a half pages. So when you're a young kid, you just sort of giggle because, hey, it's the F-bomb. Yeah. Anyway, um, he... Everything awesome. was crammed together without any um, thought of subject by size. My dad knew where everything was filed, so and that's all that mattered. It was his library. So I would read my way through it, and I'd go from proceedings of the international something of electrical engineers, IEEE, which was deadly boring, to his thesis on, on the radio source in Cygnus X1, to pulp adventures like The Nude Said No. I spent years searching for the nude said yes and never found it. But I mean, <laughs> but, but I mean, well, we all have. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, and I would run upstairs with a book in my hands, and usually my dad would be entertaining. So he'd have a house full of generals or whatever, you know, and I'd be embarrassing him greatly by rushing upstairs saying, Dad, Dad, this one's great. Where's the next one? And he'd usually say something like, well, son, if you if you like that book, uh, you're going to have to write the sequel yourself because the, the author died in 1932. And I go, oh, okay. And I'd run downstairs, and my aunt, who grew up in the Depression, how you entertain children in those days, you had wax crayons and you had carpenter's pencils, and every brown paper bag you brought back from the supermarket you slit up the edges and ironed flat with an iron, and that was your writing paper. So mm. everything was brown. And and I would rush downstairs to this pile of paper, and I'd start writing pastiches, um, terrible sequels, but in the style of whoever I just read, whether it was uh, Lord Dunsany's Fantasies or Edgar Rice Burroughs or whatever it was, and I was learning to write by copying the good and the bad of the writing style of all these people. And the stories that grabbed me the most happened to be the fantasy stories. And as, as I got older, 
Uh, so I was already in the in the uh, habit of writing constantly. I started writing fantasy stories to entertain myself. And as I got older, Lynn Carter started publishing the adult fantasy series at Ballantine Books, where he brought back into print all of the impossible-to-obtain classics from way back. So I could see everything, not just Tolkien, but everything. And, and I happened to grow up in Toronto. This is where Guy Kay lived. He worked with Christopher Tolkien on the Silmarillion and, and the, the notes that became all of those later books. And then he wrote his own, the Fionnivar Tapestry. And, then, and, and I was reading my father's copies of the Amber novels by Rogers Lasney as they came out. And I was getting hooked on fantasy. Now... What happened was I had written tons and tons of fantasy set in a world that became known as the Forgotten Realms. And the name just comes from the fact that I figured that if we had all these myths and legends of vampires and dragons and so on, but you don't meet them every time you walk down the street, they're all gone. But they used to, they must have been prevalent. There must have been a lot of them. And so I postulated, borrowing from Zelazny, who was borrowing from Philip Jose Farmer's World of Tears books, which there were innumerable gates linking all of these worlds, and the gates were hidden, and a secret society sort of controlled their use and access. But your protagonist stumbles on one and then gets chased because now he knows the secret of the gates, and then you begin to go all over the place. Well, that was the, that I, I borrowed that conceit, that idea and said, okay, so there were obviously tons of gates linking our real world with any world in any book that I liked, like H. Bean Piper's Lord Calvin of other one. Okay. That alternate earth. Okay. Amber. Okay. Middle earth. Okay. All of these things. And then the realms was one of these worlds that was linked to ours by gates and we've just forgotten the way to get there. So there are the forgotten realms. Yeah. And, and, and I want to ask you how you came to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but I want to make sure to get back. Let's bookmark this because I know your, if I recall correctly, your first article in dragon magazine is going to deal with gates. Uh, if I recall correctly, you wrote an early article about gates. The first, the first big article, the, the, there were, there were two, um, monsters before that issue 30 oh. issue 32 and then there was the Minerian legends the divine right thing uh, in 34 but you see they held the gates article and they held the divine right oh. article for themes um, that they were going to do in the magazine and when it came to the monsters they were obviously so desperate for monsters that when I wrote the second one of those um, the Crawling Claw in issue 32. Yes. Um, I wrote that. Yeah, the Cursed was the first in issue 30. Um, in issue 32, I typed up that monster and I mailed it off. Remember, this is all pre-internet. 16 days later, my copy of Dragon Magazine came back to me, my brand new copy, with my monster printed in it. And I said, 
wow, they're desperate for monsters. <laughs> and, I, and I sat down and typed up eight of them and sent them off. And, 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 and a big pile of them got published, I think, in issue 40 or 41 later on and because of that. Was the cur- so was the cursed because... Was the cursed from Forgotten Realms? I mean, I know it yes. wasn't titled that at the time, but it was because I know I've seen a reference that the first Forgotten Realms yep. thing that was published was this. But in, in the monster itself, I don't think there's any reference of to your world in here. No, um, because here's the thing: um, the editor, the editorship that was still Tim Cask editing then. Um, the editorship at Dragon wasn't really interested in people promoting their own worlds. And neither was I. What I was doing is, I thought it was fair for my players. Everybody read Dragon back then. But that we didn't bring stacks of dragons to the gaming table. We read the, we read the articles and, you know, a week later you might be playing D&D. And this, to me, simulated what your player characters might have heard in a tavern about new monsters, new spells, or new magic items. But I somehow felt that it was fairer if I wrote them up, sent them to Dragon, they got published, and therefore editorially vetted, and therefore, in theory, they'd been tweaked for game balance and so on, although in practice they usually just went straight into print. Um, <laughs> because because I was literate, you know, yeah. um, they, went, they went straight into print. And I felt better about throwing them at my players. It, it felt fairer somehow. So everything in those early articles is said in the realms that isn't specifically otherwise like the Divine Right article, you know, which is about the game Divine Right. And the realms started to creep into the articles in mentions because I'm Canadian. I'm shy. I, I don't have the brass to do, hi, my name's Ed Greenwood, and I've thought of a new way of rolling dice that none of you schmucks have ever yeah. thought of before. So here it is, and here's my article. That, to me, just makes me cringe. And the other thing is, if all the players are reading Dragon, then they can correct the Dungeon Master. No, there's actually eight orcs in this room, and their hit points are, because I've got it right here in the magazine. So the way to avoid that, to plant the idea... But, but to give the Dungeon Master elbow room was to say, it's rumored that there are orcs in this ruined castle. But Elminster says we should not credit such stories. So I'm, I'm introducing an unreliable narrator rather than the omniscient narrator, narrator. And Elminster is my guy and I'm setting it in the realms. And that sort of softens the style. So I was purely doing it for that. Yeah. And then much later, um, Jeff Grubb, who was a um, senior editor at Dragon, <laughs> that was hilarious. Um, they, they, they sent him to a trade show and they said, you need business cards. So go down to production. They'll have business cards printed up for you. And production said, what's your title? And he thought for a minute. And then he said, ha ah, senior, senior editor. That's right. Senior. <laughs> so. So they printed up the, the business cards with senior editor, and then that caused much consternation years later when the state of Wisconsin, because TSR was based in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, said, oh, we need job descriptions for everything here. And so they had to come up with something a senior editor was different from a regular editor. 
So literally, Jeff said, allowed to run with scissors. Nice. So they solemnly wrote that into the job <laughs> description, allowed to run with scissors. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so um, Jeff called me because the company needed a new world. And Jeff had um, written this position paper for inside the company called A Unified World for the Second Edition of the AD&D Game. And what, what would happen is um, Gary, had, Gary Gygax had lost control of the company and they did not wish to continue with Greyhawk for two reasons. It kept him in the loop. And the second thing was over the years, as TSR had expanded wildly because of its popularity of D&D, Gary had run out of time. So he became a bottleneck. He wanted to write adventures. He wanted to write the rule books. He had to write the rule books. Everybody was impatiently waiting. You can read Dragon 21, the, the combined issue with Little Wars, where he drops the tables from the Dungeon Master's Guide into the magazine and apologizes to Dungeon Masters for the wait for the Dungeon Master's Guide. He couldn't do it. And, and he also had to run this expanding company. So he was sort of like, I only have two two legs and I'm standing on two horses and they're going in different directions. And the third horse in the middle, I can't even spare a leg for, you know, <laughs> and that was his problem. So he became a bottleneck. So everybody waited for Greyhawk products, Castle Greyhawk, the world of Greyhawk. They were waiting impatiently because he just didn't have time. That was the leg that had to go because the other two were sort of forced on him. He had to run the company, and he had to write the rule books that everybody was waiting for, so the Greyhawk product suffered. So when he went out of the picture, the company wanted a new world. So they built Dragonlance. Dragonlance had two drawbacks. It took everybody's resources for the company for two years, and it was built around an epic story a quest like the Lord of the Rings. So what do you do when the quest is over? Total anticlimax. And like literally there's what they did is, oh, we haven't shown them the other side of the world. Here's a box set with the other side of the world of cred. You know, and now we're gonna go back in time and tell the backstories of all the characters who were in the fellowship, you know. Right. <laughs> and and it's anticlimactic. So they were looking around for a world that they could bolt all sorts of adventures into. Arabian adventures, which became Al-Hadim. Uh, Oriental adventures, which became Oriental adventures, because they couldn't think of a better name. Uh, so, But they wanted something that could accommodate everything. So literally, Jeff called me. I worked at a public library in Canada, so he just phoned, phoned the public library, and I answered the phone, because um, it was a small community branch. Um, and he said, do you have a complete detailed world at home or do you make this up as you go along? And I said, yes. And yes. <laughs> and he said, good, send it. And then he said, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Have you got a pencil and paper handy? And I said, yes, it's a library. You know, <laughs> and he said, good, write down this phone number. After five o'clock today, phone it. It's my boss's phone number because it's his home phone number, Mike Dobson. So I was calling him at home so he could make an offer to me for the world. So it could all be unofficial, out of outside work time, and not at work. So if it all blew up, they could just walk away. Plausible, plausible, plausible deniability. deniability. Yeah, okay. But, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, okay. So that and and that's that was the history. I said yes because I could draw my own maps just fine with a Stadler pen or with pencil, but if I tried to color them in, it was pencil crayons, which meant the the C's all had these stroke marks from my blue pencil crayon. And I was thinking, no, I could get I could get real printed maps. Oh yeah. So I said yes. <laughs> and Ed, you, and, and, Ed you are, the, and you're in your twenties here. It's not like you're a, a a published author with you know. You've basically started in your teenage years, and now you're in your mid twenties, and you're going to be your work is going to become the standard for what all games, uh, you know, the the predominant industry leader is going to do. I mean, that how did that feel when you when did that gravity hit you that for the next your whole rest of your life would be uh, influencing millions of people, both in games and in, you know, till this day. Well, none of us knew at the beginning how big the realms was going to be. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a fan of D and D. I was a gamer. Yeah. I was thrilled that my world was being published. And so, but I didn't think it was going to become this. Um, and no, neither did anybody else, frankly. Um, that it was going to become, you know, 50 years of 55 years so far and huge novel line with over 500 novels, um, products staying in print for decades, which was unheard of in the book publishing industry. You just didn't do that. You know, um, millions of sales around the world. Um, nobody foresaw any of that. I was just thrilled to get my world published. I was 20 when my first Dragon article got published. I was, I think, about, let's see, it would be about 25, 26 when the realms got adopted as an official um, game line. And by then, I was a contributing editor for Dragon, which was Kim Mohan's way of publishing me every month without offending other gamers who'd been waiting because they'd written an article. Why, why do we publish this Greenwood idiot every month and my article isn't, you know? So he said, we're going to give you a title, contributing editor. I said... Great. How much do I get paid? And he said, "That's the contributing part." <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 at the same time, I think it's Roger Moore. If I got if I have information yes. right, is you and That's Roger right. Moore who who of yeah, course yeah we were the first two yeah we were the first two contributing editors. Uh, Roger went on to take a job at the company. Um, I think when he got out of the army. Um. And there were other contributing editors. Catherine Kerr, the fantasy author, was later a contributing editor. Um, and they changed our titles. Um, I became a creative editor later. Um, and then later on, they did away with any, anybody on the masthead who wasn't a staffer at the company. They just We just disappeared one month. But, I mean, it didn't matter because um, the real reason for that was Kim... Mohan, who came from journalism, not from gaming, had discovered that he finally had a contributor who he could assign topics to, who could write to a specific length. Because Dragon was put together in eight-page signatures. So if you had more ads, you suddenly needed articles as filler to fill out that signature of eight pages. If you had fewer ads, you trimmed an eight-page signature, and the extra articles waited till next month or later on. And then you tried to arrange themes and so on. But to have a gamer who could write something to order 
or yeah. right to match a piece of art or right to fill in a spot in a theme issue was like manna from heaven for him. And the other thing was I could write fast. So putting the two together meant, oh, good. I have this secret weapon up in Canada. So he published me a lot, which in turn meant that I got noticed by Jeff, Jeff Krubb, who read Dragon along with a lot of the TSR staffers and said, hey, I wonder if this guy up in Canada has a complete world that we could just buy instead of developing, because Dragonlance was a resource sink. It sucked in all these artists, all these designers, and they what they needed was something to get up and running fast. And oh. and yeah, and, sorry, that's it. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm just going to mention because you know I was going back through the Dragon magazines, and what was interesting is in May 1987, a gentleman by the name of Neil Brandt writes a letter, and this is what he says: "I would really love to see Ed Greenwood's world mapped out." So, and then I think, and then in June 1987. There's the announcement, oh, by the way, Forgotten Realms is going to be published. So, because you had published, a lot of the material that you had published had made references to the realms, right? So, I mean, there were clearly people out there that were reading them, and they knew that you had this world out there. And so, obviously, there must have been an interest in, in players wanting to hear more about your idea. Did, did you have any sense of that? you get fan mail or anything like that directly from folks or, or through TSR that people were interested? Through TSR. Okay. Nothing directly, but yeah, um, they would they would send us packages of fan mail. Still do. Um, these days, most of it comes from penitentiaries. Um, okay. <laughs> most, well, most of the rest of us don't write letters anymore unless right. we're really young or really old. Right. Um, it's email or somebody reaches out with a with a phone. But um, yes, they did send me fan mail, and you see, the thing is, all the way through 1986. I was actually sending packages to Jeff, and it was a go. I mean, you know, we were working on getting the first Realms products out. As it happens, um, Doug Niles, who was on staff at TSR, had already written Albion, which was the um, setting for TSR UK. And, and TSR UK um, had this ambitious plan for doing their own line of stuff which sort of died stillborn and they became a, just a reprint and distribution arm. So he had this setting already done and it was very Celtic and matter of England and so on. It became the Moonshays. They sunk my Moonshay Isles and stuck his in, in its place. And he'd written the first novel, Dark Walker on Moonshay. So that, aside from the little freebie handout that came with Dragon of a map of the Cormier Dales Area. Aside from that, which was a, like a freebie handout, Dark Walker on Moonshade became the first Realms product. But all through 1986, we were I was sending Jeff Grubb weekly packages using TSR's FedEx account and typing away at MAD on topics he would give me. He'd phone me at the library every week, and we'd have long phone calls. And he'd, he'd say, okay, I need more on the dungeons. Do you have anything on this country over here? What do you have on, on spells or what do you have on liches or, or famous wizards? We don't know where they are anymore. And I would sit down and type up a package and I would send it off to him. And he and Karen Boomgarden, now Karen Conlon, were assembling, then Karen Martin, were assembling the what became the old gray box, the baseline 
box set of the realms. So that was happening all through 1986. Um, I was beginning to have an inkling that there were some people who were interested in the world. But here's the thing. That happens with everything. Larry Tatilio's Cerulea and so on was also, he mentioned it in a couple of articles and so on. But um, they get fan mail of that sort all the time. The, the, like like that one that was published. Right. They published that one deliberately as a sort of, Teaser. let's yeah. see if anybody else says yeah. <laughs> let's see if somebody else says yes to this. Uh, because they were trying to figure a cheap way of publicity. Because right. one thing that TSR was never good at, A, they lacked the, the funds, and B, Gen Con, uh, the, 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 the D&D thing sold itself. You know, they, they didn't have to worry about publicity. People clawed at them to get the next product you know they could bring it out with no covers and not telling anybody the title and everybody would be bringing down their doors to get to it so they never had to be good at publicity and they did they weren't quite they didn't quite know how to do it without any resources the only publishing organ they had was dragon so they were slipping things into dragon and we were all reading it so it was like everybody parsing you know it's it, it it's as if um to bring it back to Rush for a moment, it's as if Getty Lee stood stood on the stage and in between two songs said, hey, we're going to have a new album out. Yeah. And it might be called this or it might be called that. <laughs> and then they just play the new song. And then everybody afterwards, social media would explode with people going, he said there's a new album. And it's going to be called this or it's going to be called that or maybe not. Maybe something else. <laughs> well, they were using Dragon the same way. So they would drop in teasers, and they would see what, what the response was. Mm. See, I'm so naive. I just thought it was a coincidence. That's right. Coincidence I'm like very that. naive. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's almost like this, watching the Soviets where where they're lined up on the uh, on the dais as the army goes by, who's next to who, and like, oh, that must mean they're going to attack Afghanistan because that guy's three things down. Right. Exactly. Hey, so so yeah. So Ed, uh, you know, I know that Trace Hickman, you know, he uh, and moved over to TSR. Any thought of working for TSR directly and moving to Wisconsin? Was that even broached in the conversations at any point? Many times. Um, yeah, they. I was offered jobs. I think five times. Here's the thing. I I worked at a uh, public library job up in Canada. Yeah. Um, public public library people are not well paid. Um, we didn't have pay equity then, and it was a female-dominated um, profession, so their salaries had lagged way behind. So it was, you know, we, none of us were buying Maseratis on our on our library money. Yeah. However, it was located in Ontario, so we had full medical and dental. That's just like every citizen gets. So what? TSR would offer me. Um, Jim Ward would say, "Come on down. We'd love to have you here, and you'd be paid in American dollars." And I'd say, "But Jim, if I live in Canada and get paid in Canadian dollars, a dollar's a dollar. I go to the supermarket; it's a dollar. But if I live in the states, a dollar's a dollar. I go into the supermarket, and it's a dollar. It's not American money that's worth more. Right? It's a dollar, and." He said, but we could give you like medical and dental. And I said, I get all that anyway. And I have a family up here and I have a house and everything's settled. Why can't I just telecommute by sending you all this stuff? Which is in, in the end what happened. And, um, and probably worked out I, 
you know, you survived and many of the folks, unfortunately, uh, the, the whole process changed and it was swept up. So, you know, it, it worked out for you in the long run, it seems. Yeah, it, it did. And I mean, from the company's point of view, they got a guy who was working more than full time for them, as in filling more SKUs yeah. than a full time staff designer would. And they he wasn't on payroll. I mean, yes, I was getting paid quite well for each product, but it was I was getting paid for the product. They didn't have to carry me as a staff member with any of the the state costs and payroll tax, none of that. It just didn't apply. And the other thing is, I could be asked to do things in a heck of a hurry that would cause the people on staff to drink heavily or run screaming into the hills. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, their artists used to complain about being asked to do two paintings a week. And they'd say something sarcastic like, is it okay if I have half of Sunday off to see my wife? Mm. You know, just so I remember what her face looks like. <laughs> you know, now, something like that, you know, because they were being pushed to do it at unheard of rates. Well, they would ask me to do something. I'd say, sure, here you go. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, so um, I know Dan's got some questions, but we have some folks online and um, they have some questions. Uh, so Shannon and David have a similar question. You know, uh, Forgotten Realms is still the de facto campaign and you know, started with 5e still. Um, what's your thoughts on you know, some, the changes as the editions change, and particularly 5th edition? Um, are you satisfied with the way they're have taken your work and obviously I'm sure they've contributed. How do you feel about fifth edition and how forgotten realms is being used in it? I love fifth edition. Um, my favorite edition is second. Um, it's the one I did the most rules design in and it's the one I think in. Okay. I have worked on every edition of the, uh, AD and D game, but I haven't actually done any rules work on fifth edition. I've done adventure work, I've done realms lore, but I haven't actually done the rules mechanics. And I'm not sad about that because I think the realms at the moment is in very good hands. The story team they have, uh, Chris Perkins as story lead, Jeremy Crawford as, as the rules manager and, and sort of shepherding each book through, uh, Mike Mirrells, um, it is a great team, okay? I think the realms is in very good hands. It is also a very small team, you know, so the, the their overhead is small. Um, with you, they use freelancers to do some projects, and the actual people in house, there are very few of them. I think they're doing a great job, and they're also riding a bucking bronco at the moment because the thing that I I talked with Brian Thompson, who was the head of TSR's book department for a while years and years ago saying when he, when he was talking about how as they brought out new products the sales dropped and i said well you're you're hitting the same wallets you know you're now starting to cannibalize your own um consumer base because you bring out a new world that doesn't mean you get all sorts of new people for the new world you get first and foremost you get the gamers who are already in the game because D&D is not an easy game to just sit down by yourself and learn. It works best if you sit down with people who already play it. So there's a bit of a barrier there and you add, add to that the satanic thing. Yeah. And, and so that in a lot of the States, they can't just walk into a corner store 
and buy D&D stuff because it won't be carried. Plus the price barrier. This hardcover book is expensive, you know, so you might get it for Christmas and you might get it for birthday if your folks don't get the satanic thing um, waved at them. But it's expensive. Uh, so you add all those together. We need to wait until all the gamers are running Hollywood movie studios and running the publishing companies and want the stuff that they couldn't get. And, of course, now it has happened. Yeah. You see with Stranger Things, you see with things, the streaming has taken off so people can see D&D being played and feel it being played, even if they are isolated at home. And everything is taking off at once, and it's almost become mainstream. And you're, you're thinking, oh, it's, it's D&D movie time. And in the meantime, we have huge success with the Lord of the Rings movies and then a huge success with Game of Thrones. And so now it's like, okay, this isn't just weirdo stuff anymore. And now huge success with Stranger Things. You know, so uh, it, they are riding the wave right now. And it is wonderful to see. It's a, it's a new golden age. As a gamer, I just sit there and go, um, <laughs> and, 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 and buy the stuff, you know. So I'm perfectly happy. Um, I thought fourth edition was a misstep, although I, I worked on it. I thought this is almost like this isn't D&D. This is more like World of Warcraft as a game. I think this is a mistake. You should keep it D&D sort of thing. Um, but and and as a as the, the the master of the realms, I hate it when we have new additions and therefore change things in the world. Like all the assassins are dead <laughs> yeah. to fit a rules change. You know, that's sort of like, really? Did we have to do that? You know, um, so there's always like uh, a a hiccup, and to me, the hiccup that bothered me first was when when we first did the big change with the um, time of troubles, the avatar. It was like, guys, I haven't finished covering the world with geographic source books yet, and you're blowing up. Um, <laughs> and now, of course, with fifth edition, the decision has been made to concentrate on the Sword Coast area. Right. Uh, for the company's releases, because that allows them to have the rest of the world free for licensees. If you want to come up with a new virtual reality game and you license it from, from Wizards of the Coast, and it's going to be set in the realms, and they can say, well, set it over here and you can have carte blanche. You can do anything you want, because we haven't detailed that in this edition. You're off on your own. So it gives them uh, a licensee the, the freedom to do something. So I see why they're doing it. It's Minor league frustrating to me, but hey, it means the Sword Coast is finally getting coverage. You know, so I'm perfectly happy. Um, I, I like what they're doing. Um, I hope they go on doing it for 20 years and we have the usual stack of gorgeous products before we do a sixth edition. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, and that's some of the comments is, um, you know, the, some of the changes that each edition kind of promotes um, where the, I don't say the purest sense, the original works that you did, second edition, third edition, you know, it almost feels like some people commented that the awning portal was in the newer edition was seemed a little watered down compared to some of the purest sense of it. Um, does that, you know, does that get your hair in the back aired or you just kind of go, well, they have to do what they have to do uh, as, as far as trying to promote it. And in the end, it's going to work out. Yeah, Exactly. They have to do what they have to do. Here, here's the thing. Years ago, um, Jeff Grubb and I were commenting on 
the new design team for the realms to each other. And Jeff said, well, you've given the new kids the keys to the vet. So they're going to drive it. <laughs> and they're going to do their own donuts. And they might, they might dent the rear panel. What the hell? They have to get their chance to drive the vet. I mean, if you were given the keys to the vet, would you look at it and say, no, I don't want to drive that because my dad drove it once. No, you'd say, oh, 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 oh give me that thing. <laughs> so, so, I mean, everybody wants their chance to drive the vet and everybody wants to leave their mark on the realms. And I get that. That is human nature. And, and yeah. I sold the realms. I understand that it's not my world anymore. It is our world. And each new group of people is going to make their own changes. I hate it when the changes jar that don't fit with what's gone before. But that's an internal continuity for the realms that I'm complaining about, not my druthers. Yeah. You know, I know people are going to take another take on it. I just want them to, to to look at the tapestry that's already there, and instead of throwing paint on the tapestry or burning a hole in it, to just weave new stuff onto it so it fits into the tapestry. Is there an opportunity? You know, because again, there's obviously wikis, and, and we'll talk about how over the decades, you know, you've like you said, you still I watch, we watch your Twitter feed, we watch online. You know, people are asking you questions all the time, and you're obviously your profession of being. In the library sciences, information sciences, you have an encyclopedic knowledge. You have books behind you. Um, how do you, how do people, you know, if, again, if they want to adjust the realms, like you said, take the Corvette out. Um, you know, what what is kind of the primer that they should do? You know, is it is it starting with you know my here's my book of Elminster. You know, start with Elminster and um, you know read the you know thirty books that you've done plus exclusively or the hundred. You know, how does someone get started? Because it is daunting if you're just starting in 2019, 2020, excuse me, 1980, um, to, you know, to come into your world if you have no reference except what's in fifth edition. Yeah, no, 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 I, I totally get that. And I don't have a good answer for you because the, what I would recommend are books that are hard to find nowadays as books. But um, you could do worse when starting in the realms than to have the third edition Forgotten Realms campaign setting, the big honking book, as your backup. I mean, it'll, it'll just sink you if you start trying to read through it. But to have it is, because it's got an index, you can go and look stuff up. That's your backup. The best thing to do is to read the Forgotten Realms Adventures hardcover, which has all the cities in it. Read a Volos guide. And probably one of the Volos guides that isn't Waterdeep, one of the ones where he travels around, like the Sword Coast yeah. or Cormier, read a Volos guide, because they're chatty and there's lots of maps and illustrations, and it'll give you an idea that this is a living world. And that's sort of the, the core of the realms. That sort of thing would be where I'd start if I had to. But And you can also start with a nice, simple adventure and just not worry about the setting so much and get into it later um, because goodness knows there are tons and tons of people who will correct you <laughs> now the third king of the obarskir dynasty was <laughs> no <laughs> and 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 you don't want to get steamrolled like that right away and it shouldn't matter because it's a medieval come renaissance world 
what you know is what your character knows, and the best place to start is in a small village somewhere. What you know is what the people around you know, and most of them aren't talking about their their naughty experiences from when they were a teenager. Right. And then each caravan that comes through, the people in the caravan to get free drinks tell stories in the tavern, and it's the latest news, and it's old whoppers. And you've heard some of the old whoppers before, and you get to hear the latest news, which is why your parents and grandparents and all the other people in the village are willing to pay for drinks, because they're getting the news, the latest news from these caravan people, and that's all you know about the world around you. And, and then keep it like that, and then don't don't drown in the deep end of the pool. And, and Ed, did it surprise you? And does it, if it did surprise you, does it still surprise you that gamers are so interested in somebody else's campaign world? Because I think you had mentioned that TSR originally, you know, didn't come around to the idea of, of having someone's campaign world. If, if I recall correctly, Gary Gygax assumed people wouldn't be very interested in Greyhawk and they were a little bit slow to the game. I think Judges Guild caught on a little bit sooner. Uh, than TSR. So, so did it surprise you? And, and does, if it did, does it still surprise you? No, it didn't surprise me. Um, I think the reason the Realms was so popular when it hit was the level of detail. I think gamers were craving the setting. And if you think about it, most of us don't want to think about it. When we're reading um, a favorite fantasy novel or you know watching a, a movie we want to be immersed in the experience we want to run with the story we don't want to think about it but if you sit back and think about it and when you're a writer or an editor or a librarian <laughs> you you are pushed more often into the thinking about it um we we want to go to a favorite place. We want to go to the, the land of make-believe. Our land of make-believe. We want to go there. And we want, and as a refuge from our real world, as, as a, to get away from something drudger, drudgery, like filling out a tax return or something we don't want to do, where we've been paying bills all, all day, and in those days, paying bills meant typing out or handwriting checks addressing them, putting them in envelopes, putting the stamp on, licking and sticking it, saying, no, i got to go to the post office. You know, <laughs> all that stuff. And, and you, you step into this world where you can be the shining prince or princess, and the dragons are flying towards you as you stand on the battlements. Wouldn't that be cool? And, of course, you know it's imaginary, so you know the dragon can't really eat you. And if the battlement cracks and falls into the moat, you're not really going to die. You know, so there's that little reassuring bit, but it's your it's your wonderful place, not your safe place, yeah. mm -hmm. but your wonderful place, your place you can go to and that you want to see more of it. So if somebody gives you a detailed world setting that you can you can end up in arguments about. So Zambia isn't going to attack because the moment they do, Westgate's going to, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, when you can engage in tactical discussions with other people about the same thing or you know i think the assassination attempt on king azun was done by this noble host nah never them 
they're 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 all panty waist. Can't fit them. It would have been so and so, you know. And, and you can actually get into an argument and care about an imaginary construct, and you think, God, that's wonderful. Does anybody scary but wonderful? <laughs> Does, do, do any of your fans correct? Have you ever been corrected on your own world? So have you ever said something? Oh yeah, <laughs> they know it better than oh, you. Oh yeah, times? many a time. Oh yeah. Um, uh, I work with two secret lore lords of the realms: Eric Boyd, Eric L. Boyd, Eric Logan Boyd, and George Krashos. Uh, Eric Boyd is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go blue. George Krashos. Uh, <laughs> George Krashos is as far south as you can get in Australia. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and they, they have for years asked me little questions or invented little things to say, in this product it says this, but the guys who wrote this product obviously didn't read the first product, so they contradict here and there. So we've we come up with an explanation. Is it okay if we use it? And... Can you give us some names so we can do, do, do that? And we do that all the time. I've done that about eight times this week with them. There's a whole bunch of things sitting here in a file on my desktop for me to get back to them. As we add to the dwarven language, the giant language, the elven language, so we can say more words in all those languages. And we have to rationalize every time somebody just makes something up in a product. And we go, oh, we have to add it and explain it away. Now, some people are really good at this. When Erin Evans came up with a whole bunch of dragon talk for her novels, worked fine. Perfect. We can just grab it. We, we take that for draconic and add that to the our uh, draconic lexicon and build around it. Um, and some people aren't so good. You know, um, some people have a way with words. And as Steve Martin said, some people uh, not way. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we got a question from uh, actually from Australia, from our Chamberlain, most august, uh, David Thompson. He he wanted to know why does the Cyclopedia of the Realms does not contain information about bards? Why does the Cyclopedia of the Realms not contain information about bards? information? I have no idea. Which Cyclopedia are we talking about? Now? I assume it's in the first one, right, David? He's in the Cyclopedia in the original box. Yes. Yes. yes, because because at that time, Bards was a, don't talk about them because we're revamping the class. Because ah. you've got to remember, Bards changed from first edition to second edition. They changed quite a bit. Right. And guess what? There are all sorts of things. You'll notice two other things absent from the original Realms box set. Psionics, complete, almost completely because they were revamping psionics, and heraldry. I had tons of heraldry. They left it almost all out because they were trying to differentiate the product lines, and heraldry was Greyhawk. Mm. So the realm's heraldry just didn't get published for years because heraldry is Greyhawk. Yeah. And you can't have, you can't have people riding dragons because that's Dragonlance, and they can't have lances because that's Dragonlance. You know, and you can't have Dragonborn because that's Dragonlance. But you see, the realms was always in this uncomfortable position of being the home world for the game. So people would put everything in it. They put Kender in the realms, and when the editors caught it, they tear their hair and take him out again. And then eventually, somebody would miss it and leave it in, and then people go, "Oh." So when they say we have dark elves in the realms, do they mean dark elves or do they mean drow? 
do we have both or one? Because dark elves are crim. You know, that sort of thing. And and uh, everything would creep in because the realms was the world. It had to accommodate everything. That's what TSR was using it for. Um, which is also why you got real world analogs in the realms that just make my skin crawl, because I think it's bad role play. And it it, it and it bumps people out of the game, the immersive experience I was talking about earlier. And there's always some nit at the at the gaming table that say they didn't have stirrups at that time, so this <laughs> and, right. and, and he's he's and he's jolted your head out of the imaginary role playing experience into an argument about the real world. So I'd rather not have real world analogs, but it is also the easy way for people to understand bits of the realms, particularly if they're an outside licensee who doesn't know Dungeons and Dragons or anything. Oh, so it's sort of like this. Good. I know pirates. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So, Dan, I know you've done a lot of research, and again, this is uh, our theme for the 2020 is we're going back 40 years, and you know, we, we did talk a couple of the articles that you wrote because you were so prolific. Um, I know you wanted to talk. Let's about, go back to your child. That's right. Yeah, basically, uh, yes. this is this is your life, Ed Greenwood. That's you what we call this when we, when we bring in guests. Yes. Yeah, we bring in guests, and uh, Dan uh, does uh, his profession. Investigations is some part. Uh, research part is part of it. So if you feel like you're being in a, uh, in a deposition, don't don't worry. None of this will be used later against He's you. He's a so. librarian. There's not that's, a big difference between a librarian and a lawyer. That's is true. There's very not similar. Much. A lot of similar, research. Exactly. A lot of research. And I wanted to, I wanted to go back to editions, and I wanted to go way back. I was curious about what your reaction was at the time first edition came out. Because if I understand correctly, you'd started in 1975, so you were obviously playing. OD&D, what was your, because a lot of people mm-hmm. feel in retrospect that first edition AD&D had a lot of rules. A lot of people still prefer to play OD&D because it's more rules light. I'd be interested to get, what was your sense at the time when first edition came out? When first edition came out, I bought the original three booklets. By the way, the box came along later, at least in Canada. Mm-hmm. That the, they went in. Um, when I saw them in a in a hobby store, they were literally had a rubber band around them, and you bought the three separate booklets. I thought, great idea, lousy execution because it's just going to be an argument at the table over what happens. So we sort of we played it once and thought, this is such a cool idea. It's a pity, you know. <laughs> and we we set it aside and went back to our board games, and we had all sorts of. Um, early tactical board games, Panzer, Blitz, all that stuff. Um, um, and by then, uh, I, I grew up with Donald Featherstone's um, war games where you, where you had airfix figures and you, you actually did a scenario. And then, then I was following on as Avalon Hill would print other people, reprint other people's games like Diplomacy. Um, SPI was starting up hexes and case law and i would buy those um i wasn't actively playing D again although i was always interested in it i was interested in it as a creative reader like when when greyhawk the supplement came out and then blackmoor and then eldritch wizardry i bought them and said oh wait a minute this is a lot better you know there's lots of cool stuff in here we've added the thief We've added that evocative little illustration of the thief up on the top lintel of the of the door with the minotaur going mm, 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 yeah, exactly. underneath them. You know that that 
yeah, that really, uh, um, and we've got beholders and we've got um, all sorts of cool magic items. Oh, my mind is bubbling now. And then we started playing and I changed the realms, my, my fictional world, to match D&D as a skeleton. When the monster manual came out for AD&D, followed immediately by the player's handbook. And I said, oh, this is brilliant. All the monsters and mythology, plus these new ones, all codified. So I know exactly what they do and which one is more powerful than the other one. And then here is Jack Vance's Dying Earth magic system, the Fire and Forget magic system. But all the spells are detailed. So no longer is the wizard, the god in the machine, who can come up with just the right spell to end the story and win it. But now, and neither is the wizard some sort of tank who can... Pew pew endlessly. Now there are limitations on magic. This is perfect. Everything in the realms is going to match this because it just gave me a skeleton to keep me, quote, honest as a storyteller when I was writing fiction stories. And that's when we started regular play, 1978, with the player's handbook being released. So I love that. That was dead on great. Um, because to me, um, the number of rules didn't bother me because my home group always settled on we were acting, we were ham acting, we were role playing. It was never the rules. And even today, we almost never roll dice, we almost never draw a weapon. It's all playing in characters, our characters, um, which used to mean lots of Monty Python funny voices, but I mean, um. Over the years, we have grown into our characters, and our characters have grown up around us, so we speak in character. Everything is in character. Um, when I run the realms to a new group, or I add a new person at the table as a guest, I'll say, okay, we have one rule, two rules here. One is, please don't split up the party. You'll die, so just don't. Um, because <laughs> I don't want to leave somebody, I don't leave somebody with nothing to do for 15 minutes, you know. And num number two is what you say, what comes out of your mouth, comes out of your character's mouth. So no standing three feet from the orc discussing how you're going to disembowel <laughs> the orc without without the orc hearing you. you know. Um, and the exceptions are player to player and player to DM. Player to player. Could you pass me the chips? Or can I have a D4? Um, player to DM. I've lived here all my life. Have I ever seen this guy before? Or, have I ever seen this heraldic badge before? You know, which is a legitimate thing to ask your DM. Other than that, what you say, your character says. So we're immersive role-playing, so the rules don't matter so much. Which is why when I, I, I often got asked, in fact, maybe 20 or 30 Gen Cons in a row, when they were run by TSR, I would be asked to run tables of D&D &D for complete newbies. The mayor of Milwaukee, some visiting press people, people who had won things for a charity event, little kids, because they knew I would tell, do a storytelling game. People didn't need to know the rules. And even from the beginning, there were rules that people didn't use. I defy you to find anyone who used weapon speed factors <laughs> from that one page in the player's handbook. We all just read the page and... We either incorporated it so we didn't have to think about it, or we didn't use it. We didn't open that page. You know, we just flipped over that page. 
Um, so the rules don't matter. The story matters. And you need to care about the characters. And half the stuff that went on creative competitive gaming, like, I can kill off your character in five seconds. Waha! Just don't happen if you care about the characters. Because it's not about doing something to the guy across the gaming table. It's about in the adventure and the game is usually postulated that your characters need each other. You're a team. Nobody is skilled at everything, which is one of the things that, you know, you see some little kid who's trying to do this super build character who's got levels and everything and can cast um, arcane magic spells and clerical spells in, in the same round. And, and, and also attack you and backstab you and then have a free action and hide. And you're going, <laughs> you know, the game is set up so that you're good at this one thing and you're good at that other thing and we have to work together. And that is, I think, one of the beauties of the game. It's a cooperative more than it is competitive. The, uh, one of the questions, so when you do run, uh, uh, whether it's Forgotten Realms or something else, you, your home game, what edition do you run? Is it, do, you, do, you, do you stay in second edition since that's your favorite uh, or do you play the latest and greatest? Usually, unless, okay, there have been lots of times when I'm running the realms that we are playtesting something for TSR, and then at the beginning of 5th edition, a lot for Wizards. You know, there was the friends and family playtest yeah. and so on. But all the way through the TSR years, I'd be given something to playtest. And that would often, um, would often require specific rules to be used. But aside from that, I would say... Don't worry about it, because I get asked that today. You know, people come to play with me and they say, what edition? Doesn't matter. <laughs> huh? Doesn't matter. What do you got with you? And, and if I'm using pre-gens, I have the Baron's Blades is my band of people in, that I made up for early Gen Cons. And if you actually get a Baron's Blades character sheet in your hand, you'll see copyright 1992 comma, 1994, comma, 1996, TSR Incorporated, all rights reserved, you know, is on the top of the character sheet. They are original, and, and they're second edition. And people go, what's Thacko? Don't worry about it. If you try and hit something, just roll the dice, I'll tell you whether you hit them or not. I'll tell you what happened, okay? Don't worry about it. Um, but if people really get antsy, I only know 5th edition. Good, we're playing 5th edition. You see, I... <laughs> You know, it's it's just to reassure them because it doesn't matter to me. I'm not, and I'm not one of these guys who's going to be sitting there and says, you know, you all spent a night in the open, so you all have to roll roll a system shock survival roll because you were subject to exposure because you spent the night in the open. So you you need to roll a system shock survival roll or you die. That was my Which, last by session. The way, was that was my last session. Yes. Yeah. We got there. We, I told, you know, they said they slept overnight. They all died and that's, we went home. That's Vic Dorsett's hex crawl. That's isn't right. It? That's, you got you to gotta make that roll like eight times yeah. just to get to the next city, it's, I before, think. Yeah, don't you? He, you decide, he decides when lunch is and he kind of does that. He says he rolls that. So, oh, well, that's interesting. Ed. That's a new way to play for us. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the advice. <laughs> Tip. Can I, is it, can I ask about this? Yes. Can you see it? That's right. Sure. You're, you're at Gen Con 14, I believe. You're, you're very excited because yes. you just bought this, the Fiend Folio. I'm holding yep. it up for listeners. Yep. And uh, it, we all literally, they, 
they'd open the doors and we'd run. <laughs> we'd literally run along the corridor, down three flights of stairs, and the TSR booth was underneath, and we'd mob them. And, 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 and yep. unfortunately, I guess you were fast because you got one, and, 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 yeah. and, and you spent several hours with some pizza and a fiend folio, and yep. it turns out you're, you're less than thrilled, right? You, you write an article a couple months later, right, in, in, uh, uh, in, Kim, in Dragon. Kim, Kim, Kim asked me to. Okay. Kim Mohan asked me to. He said, what did you think of it? And I said, I was disappointed because um, it's one thing to do um, the Fiend Factory in White Dwarf, which is where Don Turnbull came from, Okay, and have the Dotty, which is the companion monster to the mommy. <laughs> you know, it's it's one thing to have fun characters like that, and the Rover borrowed straight from the prisoner. You know, this big white bouncing ball that yes. jumps on you, <laughs> and not explain anything about it. But this is supposed to be an official rule book, so. I need the art to actually show me what the critter looks like. Because as a dungeon master, I can't just hold up the book because then everybody knows what the monster is. And I need to see the monster clearly. If, if it's got wings, how big is the wingspan? You know, have they got feathers? Are they membranous? Um, are there claws on the wings? What? Tell me. <coughs> I need that. And I need to know a little bit about its ecology. What does it eat? Air? You know, for the longest time, we didn't know what most of the dragons ate. Um, and I don't mind silly monsters, but give me an in-game silly explanation as well so that I can at least hand-wave it. And a lot of the monsters in that disappointed me because they didn't come up to that standard. And Kim said, good, write me an editorial. Now, Don Turnbull and I met, and he wasn't upset about it. Um, he said, yeah, that, that was... That's fair game. No, no foul. Okay. But yeah, Kim asked me to write that because for one thing, he didn't want Dragon to be a house organ. It was being criticized that way by some gamers. You're going to say everything's rah-rah. You're going to, your job is to pump up each new release, no matter how crappy it is. No, 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 no. The, no, no, no. Look here. We don't do that. See, look, you know, so, so he, Again, he, that was one of the things he assigned me to wrote to write, and I wrote it. Um, and it's what I really felt. You know, I I expect the books to be an official rule book to meet this standard because we're paying big money for this. Yeah. Did Did you ever warm up to it? Did your opinion ever change, or or to this day, is that still sort of your opinion on it? Oh no, I think a lot of the monsters in there are cool. My my opinion was. You know, you had these really cool monsters, the ones that aren't as boring as, say, the dinosaurs in the Monster Manual. Oh, yeah, it's a dinosaur. Great. Or, it's a hill giant. Oh, club, throw things at us. Mmm, body odor. You know, <laughs> you know you're, it's not going to be that basic. There are some really cool monsters in there. I need the explanation. Why is this thing called the Burbalang? Why does it float? in the lotus position what does it do how do they reproduce what is it what does it exist what are its aims what does it want to do does it want to eat me does it want to trick me into something what does it do um there, there there's a gentleman um now a 
a blogger who's just published a book called The Monsters Know What They're Doing, which is all of his um, blog posts about tactically what a monster will do. But I mean, that title is very germane. The monsters know what they're doing. The, and the, the rule book should tell you what they do in life, you know, where they fit into the ecology of the world, what their aims would be, all that stuff. You know what, you know what? Ed, it sounds like he would be great for a series of articles on the ecology right. of monsters. Right. Wouldn't that be perfect for yeah, him? I think that would be great. Maybe. There's only like 600 of them. I'm sure he could work on it in his spare time. Could, well, be. could you talk a little, how did the ecology, because some, I think some of the most beloved Dragon Magazine articles without question are the ecology of. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how it came that you started writing the ecology of. Did they approach you about it? Was it your idea? Because those those yep. those were wonderful articles. They were. I, I loved doing them. Okay. There was a short-lived um, role-playing magazine called Dragon Lords, which I never saw. Okay. And it, I think, I'm not sure how long it lasted, but there were six ecology of articles written in it by i presume the editor or or mainstay of that magazine that were sent to tsr and kim and i i think tsr bought them purchased all rights to them as you know anything you you wrote for dragon they purchased all rights to because they had to because it was an addition to their game and they could build on it and reuse it you know so, you know, when somebody does gem dragons in an early dragon, they can be added into later editions of the game without going back to the, the original author. And, of course, that's been done with all of my realm stuff. You know, many people run riffs on stuff I've written, and I may or may not get credit. I certainly don't get paid again for them, that sort of thing. Um, so they had purchased these original ecology articles. And Kim just emailed me. No, actually mailed back then um photocopies of the articles and said hey can you do a bunch of these we need them to be this length um because we're gonna have a, a illustration for each one so we need you need to leave space for the illustration and it would be lovely if you covered something from this list for the beginning you know basilisk cockatrice um piercer you know they, they were sort of like the oddball monsters, but that were core, like the piercer. So it falls. So then what? What if it misses you? Can it crawl and get back up? <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of, you know, stuff like that. That Again, to go back to the Fiendfolio, the stuff that wasn't properly covered in the book, how do they reproduce? And, and people go, were you guys nuts about sex or something? No, it wasn't that. It was that in the early game, getting and selling the eggs of a critter or its scales, or its hide, or its organs, um, were was a sort of, this is how adventurers can make income. Yeah. So we need to know, are they useful for anything? How, how expensive should they be? I mean, does a, is a drag egg incredibly valuable, or is it just a huge omelet? Or does it just stink the place out and nobody wants it near? That'll affect its price. You know, so all that stuff they wanted covered. So that was literally an editorial assignment. Kim said, could you write one of these? And I wrote a whole pile of them. And again, I used unreliable narrators with Elminster providing the footnote commentary because uh, in many of them because it, it provided a little wiggle room. If you want to run them this way, 
this. If you want to run them this way, this isn't true. You know, sort of thing. And yeah, they were. I, I had great fun writing them, and those are the sort of articles. As I told Kim, I can write till the cows come home. Just give me more. It sounds like a Kickstarter for Ed to complete the Fiend Folio, yes. the Apology of the Fiend Folio. Yes. We need to set that up for him. And, you know, he's we'll got, give him a week. That's right. He he's, only needs a week to finish it, right? You know? And he'll, be, he'll have all the ecology done for every monster. There. That'd be great. In my spare time. In your time. spare time, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be worth your while. We'd have to have stretch goals, right? If, if they only give X, you only do A. If you want Z, they got to complete right. all this. That'd That's be right. amazing. Sure. Yeah. If you could get if you can get me two hundred grand, I will happily do. All right. It. You heard it, folks. Two hundred thousand. Um, go ahead. ahead. Two hundred thousand. Ed will redo the Ecology of the Fiend folio. That's amazing. I love I, it. Could, Ed, you I, have two hundred thousand. What are you waiting for? Uh, I do. I, I think you are. You're independent. You're the well. treasurer of this oh, thing. That's okay. Ed, could you also talk about um, your articles on the plains of hell? And I'd also, and also your firearms articles. I think you know when people think of old articles of yours from Dragon Magazine, those are two that are often talked about. Sure, um, I wrote up um, the hells on my own bat because I thought this is something that needs coverage. Now there was a gentleman, a friend of mine in Toronto called Alex von Thorn, and he wrote a seminal article called "The Politics of Hell" that was published in Dragon 17. And I love that. And it did it did um, beg a very important question. Why is Lucifer, why is the devil never mentioned? And of course, the reason it's never mentioned because Gary was having troubles enough yeah. from, with teenage mothers from heck and, and this dangerous satanic game. So he did not want a holy roller to from the pulpit somewhere, wave a monster manual and say, the word devil is in this book 46 times. And, and demons, demons are in the book too, 82 times. You know, he didn't want that to happen. Um, which is why, by the way, in a later, later edition of the game, yeah, they, got rid of it. they got renamed. Yeah, yeah so literally, so that Holy Rollers would have to stop doing that. They'd say, so where is it mentioned in the book? It's not. You know, shut up, sit down, you know, sort of thing. Um, so I thought, okay, what is hell really like? Because you have in the player's handbook that one-page spread, a Paladin in Hell, where the guy in armor is hacking away in these endless, you know. Okay, so what's it? It would be cool if we could go there. Okay, I have to, I have to detail the, the actual setting, the physical. Well, what are the hells, the nine hells, are? what are they like? And I have to explain some things. And it, what I came up with was an, an explanation, which, by the way, they chopped out of the article, and then they chopped it out of Hell Revisited in, in 81, because Gary and Frank Mincer were afraid that it would backfire on them. You know how the, the devils had talismans yep. in the original game? Well, I designed them all. Mm. I drew them. Did, you know, here's what the talisman so and so looks like. He says, "God, no, that'll be written. That'll be chalked on church walls across the nation. No way." And took it out. And the other thing I said is, "Okay, how come there's no Lucifer? How come this one devil, archdevil, rules two layers, the eights and the nines? I need an explanation for that." So, what I came up with was, Asmodeus is on top in the status quo. The only thing he can't control is archdevils. 
lesser devils can be summoned, you know, and so they are subject to the will of the archdevils. But an archdevil has free will. So if two archdevils get together and have kids that he doesn't know about, you can have a legion of potential usurpers, you know, people gunning for him. So he outlaws that. So what I came up with was Lucifer and Batna, his consort, had a kid, Lucifuge, without permission. And when Asmodeus discovered it, he killed them all, like killed both of them, killed the kid, and gave Lucifer's lair of the Nine Hells to his worst enemy amongst the Archdevils. And that was his um, object lesson to the rest of them. You know, you do, you do this, it'll happen to you too. Which gave, gives us the explanation now. It also gives you outcast devils on, the, on Avernus, the uppermost layer, the outermost layer, the one that Tiamat half rules and so on. And they can't summon lesser devils, which means your party of player characters can actually talk with them, work with them, and not get buried in literally legions of devils and killed off because they can't summon anybody. So it's just you against that. So that's the whole, and I, and I wrote it up, and Kim said, "Oh, this is wonderful." You see, there are a couple times I managed to impress Kim. Nice. The first one was the was the Gates article in thirty seven. That's why he offered me the contributing editor because he said I have never seen an article that has footnotes. Oh, I, uh, awesome! <laughs> Submitted to our magazine. So that was that was the Gates article. Well, when I when I did the Hell's article. He was said, this is glorious. There may be a delay in publishing it. I have to send it around. Meaning he has to put it on Gary's desk. He has to put it on Frank's desk. It has to have approval from all of them. And sure enough, I saw one of the um, manuscripts later, and they'd all written this and that on them. Checkmark. This is good. Oh, yeah. Um, no, 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 no. Not this here. You know, that sort of thing. So, um I had great fun writing that, and I immediately started working with a gentleman in Vancouver called Stephen Innes, who created a, a monster for the game called the Lilend, or the Lilendi in plural, um, on Limbo. And we worked on that for two or three years, and then it got killed. As No, no, we're not going to go with this, but we worked out the kingdoms of the Slad and what, what all the, the... Because I wanted to cover every single of the important exciting outer planes the happy hunting grounds didn't thrill me because i knew what it was you know and everybody knew what it was just with those three words oh it's happy hunting grounds got it you know but but all the ones that were interesting i.e the evil ones i wanted to bring to life because it was another place you could go adventuring another place to kill your party no <laughs> except for the except for the prey in the happy hunting grounds you they're not happy them. that's right they, they're not happy at all they're con they're constantly being killed over and over again Bird it's happy for, it's, that's right it's almost like a petting zoo where you shoot at the animals forever so i'm not sure they're uh, they're thrilled about it so and, and you know now your firearms article is probably a little bit more controversial right because i know that there you probably got some mail from from viewer <laughs> not viewers back then but from readers who, who were maybe concerned that firearms were being suggested as being introduced into D&D. Well, no, no, because you see, the old school readers knew, again, from Faceless Men and Clockwork Monsters, Jim Ward's account of um, 
a metamorphosis alpha adventure in an early dragon. Um, I mean, really early dragon. Um, that a mage in Greyhawk had a pistol because the the play went from Greyhawk and Gary as DM saying, "Oh, and if you do this, you end up in another world." And they rolled the right thing, and he goes, "Okay, you're in another world." And so um, Jim had to take over and do the metamorphosis self thing. But because of that, we knew that more than one wizard in Greyhawk had a six shooter and used it, you know, and Kim again, it was Kim saying, Hey, do you want to tackle this ticklish subject? And if you look at the firearms article, <laughs> um, a lot of the fun stuff got written out because there is a missile used by the U S S Navy called the dragon. So I included that of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I included the thing of if you had a um, a P-51 Mustang, the Sacramento War fighter, diving and strafing the characters, okay, you're going to have to roll 10,000 damage dice. you know. <laughs> uh, but then, it can only track across their actual bodies for a second, a fraction of a second. So you need these saving throws, and that'll determine how many of these 10,000 damage dice that you've rolled actually hit them. Remember, it is possible to tear their bodies apart with this machine gun fire. You know, and, I, and, and he said, uh, Ed, this was really cool to read, but it has to go out. It's a family magazine. I said, it is? As in, we stick swords into things all the time? He goes, that's different. And I said, oh, it's different. Yeah. Right, it's in it's in the but, circle of carnage. It's Yours was out here. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but we did work out all the stuff, and I and I did do a, a later one on modern adventuring, and I had a I drew an illustration of um, a party of adventurers attacking a diesel locomotive, a railway locomotive, called Taming the Iron Horse. They're all wailing away on this locomotive, and it's just <laughs> coming along the track, ignoring them. So I mean, I was I was exploring all that stuff, and I actually wrote a second one called the Second Volley, um, which was in answer to all the mail they got. And most of the mail wasn't, you dirty rat. It was, okay, I have this question. You did this, but what about mortars? Uh, but but what about, you know, armor-piercing rounds? What about incendiary rounds? Okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I opened the can of worms, didn't I? Okay, here we go. Um, uh, but, I mean, it, that was an, an assignment, and it was great fun to write. And I... I Wrote it over the top, and Kim said, "Okay, Ed, we're going to have to rein you in here. You're having way too much fun with this topic." Oh, awesome! <laughs> so that's when you want to TP when you're sick of your party. You right. just give the wizard a, a six shooter. A six shooter, and uh, well, and you know that's always been that tension between I don't know the purists. I don't even want, want to call it that. The purists who just want high fantasy, or those who go more the like you said back in the day where they they mixing of genres was not a, it wasn't verboten, it was encouraged. Um, and whether you took it sure. seriously as a milieu or you dumped it in to spice it up, like, you know, Gary says in the DMG, just to get a break from the, you know, overbearing seriousness of your epic campaign, either way works. But I think, you know, that's the problem with, you know, what did they say about, uh, you know, you're an author, you've been a prolific author. I wanted to talk about your books for a little bit. Um, you know that that idea of you're you're putting yourself out here, and 
Well, whether it's from the 90s or today, you know, some you don't know what people are going to react to it. They could take it the way you think of it. Yeah. Now, are kind of yep. your I mean, you've been very prolific. Uh, did you always think you would become an author or is that something that kind of just worked itself out? That's what I was doing from the from the beginning. I was telling stories. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't thinking of myself as an author. Um as it happens, I grew up in a literary family. Both my parents had published books. Um, I had a, an uncle who was actually a cousin, but he was a courtesy uncle because he was so much older than me, who was a best-selling author in the early days of Canada um, and an academic. He was the first chancellor of the University of Australia, and he wrote this giant tome called Alberta, a Bicentennial History. You know, that sort of thing. Wow. So, I mean, I, uh, he was my Uncle George to me. Yeah. And he had an order of Canada, which is like, you know, a, right. a, a decoration from the Queen, right. you know. And he would come around and give talks at the at the York Club and the Rideau Club. Um, so I grew up with authors all around me, friends and neighbors. And I was always a storyteller. And, and that was just what you did. It wasn't like, oh, boy, I get to be on Good Morning America and I get to have a a meerschaum pipe and and a a cardigan yeah. or or a blazer with the, the leather right, patches the, on between, the elbows between jacket, yeah. exactly yeah 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 i don't have you know none of that and and because early on i said to my dad so dad like could i become like an author and he goes uh, 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 what are you going to use for food son <laughs> oh Oh, so you mean it's not a perfect... No, no, no. You know how when your grandparents want you to be a doctor or a lawyer? Just keep saying yes. Because they're thinking of piles of money burying you. And I said, and does that really happen? He says, after you've paid off your student loans, <laughs> like when you're 80. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen either because he was a prof at university, so I got free tuition. So, you know, I came out of it with, you know, woo. My and by the way, when I went to university, tuition was five hundred and twenty-eight dollars a semester, and there were two semesters a year. Wow! Yeah, that's. The I bitched about. I bitched about paying three hundred dollars for my textbooks, which we never opened. But anyway, <laughs> do we have questions? But, but no. The <laughs> so as so, I mean, you you've literally produced a number of books, not only for Forgotten Realms, other areas. Uh, you know, what's your approach to being? Uh, what's your approach to being a writer, and what's advice? Because I'm sure a lot of folks feel like they have great stories, but they've never taken that. And you know, we have social media now, and people can post online. But the idea of creating a formal work, whether it's a, a contributive work with a number of authors or a solo uh, novel, you know, what advice would you give after now almost 40, 55 years of this? Okay, I I have written and published. Over 400 books. Right, which is crazy. Um, yeah. Um, In a good way. It's but, just so prolific. Yeah, but, but, the, but despite that, take this advice with a palm full of salt. Because we're all different. Okay? The number one advice I could give to somebody who wants to write is that writers write. You have to put your bum on the chair and your fingers on the keyboard. And these days, it has to be a keyboard. I mean, you can write in longhand, but you're going to have to be typing it before you send it to anybody in any format, even if you're self-publishing. So you might as well start at the keyboard. And you have to do it. The world is full 
people who've never finished their novel. I have finished about 75 novels. It's easy. It's not, I don't mean it's not hard work, but it's easy. It's like saying playing tennis. It's easy. You get this racket, you hit the ball over the net. Somebody on the other side hits it back. Easy. It's much harder to be good at it. Okay. But I can explain it very easily. Um, that's the same thing for writing. You actually have to sit there and do it. You have to keep at it. Sometimes it will be a slog, but it's an awful lot easier if you think of it as tiny, small steps and you just get them done. If a novel is a collection of this many thousand sentences, just write one sentence. Okay, write one other sentence. And here's one way you can write a book. I call it the rock video way of writing a novel. Write a cool scene. And if you've seen a Marvel Universe movie, it's one short thing where somebody says, somebody does something, there's a reaction, and then they, they say something clever, some quip. Yeah, pithy thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or if, go back to Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're fired. <laughs> or at the end of a racer, you had to catch a train. <laughs> you know, something simple like that. Okay, well, write that scene. Okay, print it out. Write another cool scene print it out cut them down so they're like on index cards or however big the scene is put them on a huge empty table if you don't have a huge empty table use the floor then arrange them in the order you want them for your story i want this scene to happen before this scene and then you say okay what are the big scenes that are missing oh yeah he has to marry her so you take a blank piece of paper and you write marry her thump and you go oh that's a big fight with a dragon Blank piece of paper. Thump. Put it there. Fight for the dragon. Get them in order. Okay. Now, rock video time. Go back to a rock video that tells a story, as opposed to one that shows you the guitar player's pelvis gyrating in your face forty-two times. Wow. Nice. So you you want a you want a video that tells a story. You can find them on YouTube. Turn the sound off. You don't want the music. Uh, let me pick one just off the top of my head. I always go for Madonna's Like a Prayer. Okay. Okay? Because it tells a story in two minutes. And just pay attention to how the story is told. What screenshots do you get and for how long? You can figure out what's happening in the story from in two minutes of individual scenes. That's what you're doing on the table or on the floor with your book. You're putting the scenes together. So then you say a la rock video, what are the minimum things I need to write to connect these key scenes and have the reader understand what the stakes are, for the reader to understand what's going on and care? Because if they don't care about the characters, the whole game is wasted anyway. Why am I writing this if you don't care about the, the characters in it? So make them care about the characters. Do the bare minimum. Write it up. There's your story. That's it. Now, if you want to make it longer, you can add more fights and stuff. But, I mean, there is the skeleton of your story. And if you just write little bits, if you do the skeleton and then say, I haven't described what they're eating. You can tell George Martin did this in Game of Thrones because you get to a feast scene 
And next to Sir Something was Something is Sir Something of Something. And next to him was Sir Something of Something. And they ate this, and then they ate this, mm -hmm. and then they ate this other thing, and then they ate this other thing in sauce. And you go, yeah, mm-hmm, I can see what you're doing there. You know, So you could do the same thing. You could add a few lines of detail everywhere, but you've got your skeleton of your story. You've got your backbone. You've got your plot. So you're not just doing the beginner's horrible mistake of writing, which is, I'm just going to write and see what happens. And my story is going to wander. And my character, things are, and then this happened. And then this happened. And then this other thing happened. Mm. And there's no climax. There's no rising action. There's no falling action. Just one thing happens another after another, like real life. And it's like, is he going to kiss her? Come on. Is he going to kiss her? You know, right, exactly. <laughs> there's no, no, no tension is built up. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, well, I'm going to go back to 19... Can I go back to 1984? Sir, you can go back to any... As long as Ed has time, I do want to want to make sure before... Uh, how, how's your, Let's make sure... How's your time? 1984 is like 1984. Exactly. Um, I've, got, I've got loads of time. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, no, that's wonderful. So you... I noted you win Best Player Award at, at Gen Speaking Con of 1984. In 1984. That's right. So could you... How, how, how did you accomplish that? Do you remember it? Could you talk a little bit about yep. what you did? Because you haven't talked at all about you as a player. We think of you as running the realms, but you obviously were, were a great player as well. Um, okay, that tournament worked because a bunch of us who were my players, we all went down to Gen Con together. And in that tournament, the AD&D Open, um, most of the teams were pickup teams. So they were people who'd never met each other before. If you had any nucleus of two or three players on any team who played together, they had a huge leg up on the others because they already knew how to work together. Right. It, was, it was like the veterans on a football team versus the rookies. Veterans would just say, come on, kid, this is how we do this. And then we'd start playing. So um, we had that benefit. And what happened was, it was an Egyptian scenario, and an Egyptian scenario where you did the right things and you ended up on the moon, which somehow had air, and so on, and you were fighting the Egyptian gods and everything. It was, it was really cool. Um, I can remember the guy who wrote it was really excited, and he said, this is going to be published. And Harold Johnson was from TSR was sitting behind his side and said, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but, but it was it was it was really a fun thing to play. But we voted for who was best player. Okay, people on the team voted for who was best player. So I I was voted that by my team, and we the dungeon masters scored points on us as to how who was the best team. This wasn't the RPGA. The RPGA Open and the AD&D Open conflicted. You couldn't play in the finals of both. You could play in the early rounds of both, but and they just started the RPGA. Then I'm a Charter Life member. Ta-da. Okay. Um, um, num number twenty. Ah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but but um, I think I won Best Player because I got so exasperated by us wandering around that. Although I hate party callers, I started pushing the party to do this and do that by having my character verbally say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? The other thing was, I was playing a, a wizard, so I wrote up rhyming couplets for each spell. 
So when I cast the spell, I would give the incantation. Mm. For instance, Fireball is, my tongue of bat and sulfur's reek and the mystic words I now do speak, where I wish to play my game, let empty air burst into flame! (laughs) Awesome. I would, do these, I would do these incantations, and I remember doing one of those in the Dungeon Master, who had been sitting there doing this, tapping his pencil, and went, you know, he's like, oh, the game's exciting, it's come alive. <laughs> and I did that all the way through, and, and I guess that's why they voted me best player. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. In fact, I just told people that's how it's going to be. They have to do couplets now for any spell or it fails. That's, yes. No one will play a magic That's user. a requirement. That's exactly. That's awesome. If it has a verbal component, let's hear the incantation. Wonderful. And actually, that's that's something we used to have big arguments about at TSR. Because into every novel, if somebody was casting a spell, I wanted to describe it. What were the material components? What were the somatic components, the gestures? And what was the incantation? Because I'd say, look, there are going to be some gamers who don't care about the stories. They're not into it. But they'll buy the novel to get all... The spell descriptions, so they can just read them out as a dungeon master. And they said, "No, no, 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 no. We don't want to have specific game fiction ties. We want them to be separate from each other." I said, "Why? They're supposed to be selling your game." Yeah. And, and that was one of one of the fights we editorial things we 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 went back and forth on that for years. But I always wanted that. I wanted to you to be able to read a spell casting description verbatim out of the book and go, "That's cool." Yeah. More evo- you know. more evocative, not uh, yeah, yeah, and and you know so now chant the magic the cleric is just going to be droning on for the whole combat going forward. So we've got some ideas here, thanks to Ed, it's, and we're saying this is Elminster from his mouth to their ears. I love it. Did you say cleric? Yes. All right. Did I, I segue cl- for you. That's a segue. You're welcome. Thank you. Because I noticed you. I can't find anyone to play domino. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that you this this does this sound familiar? Quote: Too many AD and D players leave dealings with the gods entirely up to the clerics, so that an evil thief in the party can cheat, steal, lie, defile good altars, and rob good temples, kill neutral and good characters, and then have his wounds serenely cured by the cleric of the party, who happens to be lawful good. Does that sound familiar? Yep. So I it was all it was all about role playing, man. <laughs> so we we've, we've talked a lot about clerics. Uh, w- uh, James and I are a big fan of taking clerics seriously, not just using them as heal bots. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your view of clerics and playing a cleric pr- what you believe would be a proper way to play a cleric. Okay. This is a source of constant frustration and friction because the realms is pantheistic. It doesn't have just one god. Everybody believes in all the gods, and they all worship all the gods, even if it's just a peace offering. Like, I'm going on a sea voyage, so I'm going to scuttle down to the local shrine to Umberley and leave a few coins on her altar so I don't drown, you know. (laughs) Travel insurance, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, yeah. So even if it's that, you worship all the gods. And from the very beginning, with dealing with TSR, a bunch of conservative Americans in the Midwest, I would say, okay, you believe in all the gods. And they'd say, yeah, but which one's mine? And I'd say, are you a paladin? Are you a cleric? If the answer to the both of those is no, then they're all your god. 
You believe in all of them. You worship all of them. Yeah, 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 but I've got to worship one of them more than the others. Why? You know, because I couldn't get them out of their mindset. Okay. So, yeah. From the beginning, and this was, by the way, was deliberately downplayed in the published realms. Again, because they were dealing with this satanic thing. Okay. And the teenage mothers from heck and the getting banned and so on. And what I thought would be a plus here, you spotlight clerics as heroes, the churches as good things. They said, yeah, 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 but we'll be seen as devil worshippers because there's tons of churches. There can only be one, you know, oh, the Judeo-Christian thing again. Okay, you know, now I happen to be raised in that myself, but I mean, in my fantasy world, there were tons and tons of gods. And what I wrote up, and a lot of this made it into the original Face and Avatars, written by Julia Martin and Eric Boyd. Remember Eric Boyd I mentioned earlier? Yeah. Okay, you know, um, they eventually made it into that years later. But for every deity, I had, okay, if you're a cleric of this deity, here are your do's and don'ts. You do not kill cats. You throw the rice over your left shoulder, that sort of stuff. Here's your daily rituals, you know, bathe. <laughs> you have this prayer at sunrise, this, you know, and then you, here's your credo. This is what you need to do yourself to progress in the service of the deity. And here's what you need to tell other people to do, as in, please, do not despoil the crops. Shanti will be angry, you know, sort of thing. How, how you are supposed to lead the faithful. And then I had a dirty little section saying, okay, here's what the church really wants to do in the realms. Like, corner the market on grain or um, we assassinate all rulers who don't agree with us and we worm a candidate into their court to tell them what to do you know that the the worldly aims of each church and i think that's that bit that really upset um the powers that be at tsr because they were afraid that there'd be a backlash from real real clergy you know the, to, to admit that there were secular aims for each priesthood and I did that for every deity. So if you're playing a cleric, you're not just playing a fighter who can only use maces and can heal. You have to stand for this. There's a price for all this healing magic. You have to be pushing the party in this direction all the time. That's your job. And the way you balance it is by having everybody believe in all the gods, which is brings up that old George Carlin um, comedy routine. But father, you wanted to receive, but you crossed the international date line. What would happen? You know, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure God would understand, you know, sort of thing. Well, that's the thing. You balance that by having all the party members believe in all the gods. So the moment the cleric says, we must do this because this is the right thing to do. Yes, but I, 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 I do have to point out that Shar would say that this is the right thing to do. And, and Shanti, Shanti would say this is the, oh, oh for God's sake. I mean, no. <laughs> so, but I mean, I needed that all put into the game. So I put it into the original realms and none of it got published sure. at the beginning because they wanted to backpedal on that because that was a potentially touchy subject. But I saw its lack from the beginning.
there should have been a credo in there all the time. So if I'm playing a cleric, okay, how do I dress? What are my prayers? What do I do? When I want to get new spells from the divine magic, my spells replenish, what do I do? Do I take all my clothes off and lie on the altar all night praying? Or do I get to sleep? You know, <laughs> What is the ritual? Do I, if I'm a druid, do I go to that hollow tree, take all my clothes off and get inside the hollow tree and sleep there all night, communing with the god as long as I'm awake? What gets me the spells? What am I supposed to do? If, I'm, if I pray to God, am I supposed to be active at the workbench trying to build something? And he will, oh good, you're building something, my son. Here are your spells. They will go into your mind as you work on this project. You know, what is it that, that, that God wants? And I wanted all of that in the game. Now, you can use or not use whatever you want of it. If you read part of it and say, oh, that's not for me, good. You just don't have a cleric of that in your game. And I think that's where some of the tension of the mechanical, this is, you know, you, you need to acquire spells, blah, versus really making it evocative, you know, and, and some of the campaigns that we've really liked is where the deity, you know, I played uh, in the Pelennor campaign, and the deity basically was uh, the deity of beer and, and wheat and barley, and you had to be drinking in order to get your spells back. So it was more evocative, and... You know, if you really need powerful spells, you're probably going to be intoxicated. And there was pros and cons to that. And I think that's a, that's a value that some people will discount offhand because they're like, I don't want any negatives. I just want, you know, the most powerful spell. I don't want to have to deal with it. I just want to, you know, again, not deal with all the, the ugliness of it. But that's where the role playing is missing. And I think we, uh, we do the game a disservice when we uh, do that. But I think you really have to have an, either an intimate group or someone such as yourself who's going to say, hey, you know what, I'll... F- this is the world I want to create. If you want, join me, and this is what we're going to do. So that's, that's very powerful advice. So we need to do that in our game. We need ch- Clerics are going to be chanting. Yes. The magic users will be doing either limericks or some kind of haiku in order yes. to uh, execute their spells. And spell components. Right. I see you our people just dropping components. off right now. And spell components, that's right. right. As, as soon as the monster dies, they're diving on them, ripping their entrails out to sell them. That's all good stuff. I love it. Um, and um, I have, and I don't know if we, we want to make sure that there's any questions. If people get their yeah, questions, and sure. we don't monopolize uh, well, ends we- time. Weapon, weaponless combat. They're like, what's your thoughts on weaponless combat? Have you the conundrum? We all feel like that's uh, uh, has never been done really well, at least in the older editions. Uh. True, true. Um, and okay, here's the thing. In the same way that. You can be at a convention and look over your shoulders of somebody playing D&D, and you go, that's D&D? Because they play it in a different style than you? You know, um, there, are, there are groups who play D&D like they're playing football. Like they, they huddle, and the quarterback yeah. says, okay, you run around yeah. the end, you know, and, you go, <laughs> yeah. and you go, no. And there are other people who role play it like they're, everybody's ham acting. Prithee, good my lord, dost not thou how I trow? You know, you know, and, and everything in between. So it's what works for you. And what works for us, my home realms group, is there was almost no combat at all. It was almost all intrigue, threatening, veiled threats. I don't think you'd like me to tell the king that, would you? And the other character comes back and says, 
Oh, yes, because the king would summon me. He'd be very angry. And then I'd be forced to tell him about you and the queen and the 16 rubber duckies. You know, and, and <laughs> you see that the, these threats would go back and forth, and there'd almost never be a weapon drawn. So that's how we avoided most of it. Now, when it came to weaponless combat, we did a lot of dice rolling, as in you roll 46s, you roll 46s. After you say what you're going to try and do in this coming segment of combat, we always use the word round, but I'm trying to avoid using that because it's confusing. A round means different things. Yeah. We, meant, we, ne we meant the next few seconds of combat. What are you trying to do? You know, like, I'm trying to wrestle you to the ground. I'm trying to land a punch to your throat and end this fight right now. Whatever it is, they'd say what they're going to do, and then they'd roll the dice. 4d6. We total them up. Okay, are you six points or more higher than the other guy? Then you got to do exactly what you wanted to do, regardless of what he said. You just powered through him. So you punched him in the throat, you know, regardless of what he was trying to do. Okay, if you're within a few points of each other, then the dungeon master says, you tried to punch him in the throat, but he grabbed your fist in midair. He was trying to wrestle you to the ground, so he yanked that whole arm down by the fist, but and you crashed your heads together because you lost your balance and he lost his, but he couldn't wrestle you to the ground and next round, you know, and then you'd roll again. And if, if people were tied, then they just sort of grappled with each other Nothing happened, as in no, nobody got anything decisive. And the dungeon master would introduce something weird. Like, you're fighting on the table. It just broke underneath you. Ah! Or you're fighting on the battlements. You both fell over the rail, and you're now plunging through the air towards the moat. Ah. I wonder how deep the moat is. And then, <laughs> what are you doing this round? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's... So... Um, no, was, that's how you do yeah, it. Yeah, I was just going to say, because we talked to David Wesley two weeks ago, and that's basically how they figured out the duel the back duel. in Bronstein. It's, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to stab you, roll some dice, whoever won, you it know, is. kind of thing. And they just adjudicated yes. it, as opposed to, you know, 14 pages of rules and, yep. you know, yep. oh, I'm... But you keep yeah. it, you keep it role-playing, you keep it storytelling. Yeah. The, the, the motive engine in this is what are you trying to do in this next few seconds? What are you trying to do in this next few seconds? Now we'll resolve it. But it's always what are you trying to do? It leaves the agency in the hands of the players. And you're telling a story together. It's better than, oh my goodness, let's do the charts and tables. Okay, are you in the zone of control? Of now wait a minute. Case law 36B, um, this applies... Well, yeah, if you've ever played an SPI game, there's case law. You know, um, the Panzer Division can always push you back one hex unless you're attacking across a river, you know. <laughs> and, and there are endless cases of that that crop up, and that's the rules trap. If you try and adjudicate that with rules, and I've seen these things where you're aiming at somebody and it goes, okay... This percentage is a headshot. This percentage is, a, and you can't. I do not want my game to turn into a math lesson. Well, that's like the whole because it takes. 
I was just gonna say, like, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me of the holy water roll in first edition, isn't it? Don't you have to how far it misses? Right, yeah, the grenade. It, the grenade, yeah. yes. And, and it Distance. slows every, everyone. All of a sudden, it slows down. You're trying to figure out exactly where it yeah. lands, and it just sort of... But I think that comes because it's a... Grena- yeah. Grenade-like missiles. Yeah, this, right. It's yeah. A tr- I think part of it, in, and maybe you can speak to it, the trust issue. You People... Uh, when the dungeon master adjudicates that, there's a trust of, I'm going to be impartial, I'm here to promote the story, you're going to get a fair shake. It seems like a lot of these rules were because either people weren't comfortable with that adjudication or there was a distrust that if we don't have it written, someone was going to screw someone else over. And Oh, yeah. And so... And and that 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 thing raises its head the moment you are having... Gen Con and other conventions, and there are tournaments and competitions. Yeah. Then you immediately people don't trust each other because there are now stakes and people are opposed. Um, the the original H.G. Wells Little Wars, you know, he had these cannon, and you could still buy the Corgi cannon when I was a little kid. It was a metal cannon with a spring and a thing you pulled back, and you took a Q-tip and you pulled the the cotton batting off one end and stuck it in the cannon barrel. The left of the other end is the plume of smoke and you fired the cannon. How many model soldiers it knocked over? That's was the result. Well, in early wargaming, there was this thing called the burst circle that you made out of a coat hanger. And, and I remember early Gen Cons when there was a competitive mass battle thing and a guy was casting a fireball Literally, the dungeon master handed him a plastic ring from a Fisher-Price thing, told him to turn his back to the table and stand on this mark and throw it over his shoulder onto the table. And where that thing landed was where the fireball burst circle went off. Mm. There was com- there was complaints about that because he said, no, if I was casting a fireball, I'd be aiming it. I could see what I was aiming at, you know. Uh, this is going to make it way too inaccurate. And John Shemaster said, then you come up with a better way. And the guy said, can I see the table when I throw it instead of having my back to it? <laughs> and he says, and, and the, the dungeon master said, okay, I'll grant that. So he did. He turned around, looked at the table and threw the burst circle. It didn't end up where he wanted it to be, but at least he could see his target. Right. It, 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 so there's all these different ways of adjudicating it. But the thing is, what works best in in D and D because D and D is um, a lousy war game, yeah, a lousy detailed simulation. Great storytelling, so keep it storytelling. Now there are ways you can you can say you can have an agreement within your within your group. Okay, when this happens, we're going to stop playing in D and D and we're going to sit down and we're going to play this board game, whether it's Lords of Waterdeep. <laughs> or any other board game, to adjudicate what happens now. Right. And we can stop play and spend a couple hours playing this war game, and that will determine who wins this. You could do that if the people are willing to sacrifice the loss of momentum and story and the time that's necessary. But otherwise, just keep it storytelling. And again, if people like and trust the Dungeon Master, they'll let it, they'll let it pass. Because they'll know that the dungeon master is usually on their side. When I'm dungeon mastering, people never think I'm in, I'm their adversary. They always think I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I usually am, unless they walk into a prepared ambush or trap. The player characters automatically have initiative all the time. They just do because they're the heroes. 
and people go, oh, Ed's an easy DM. No, Ed's a storyteller. He's keeping the story going. <laughs> Whereas we're like, okay, there's a one in four chance you're surprised. Oh, it's a four. The monster has four attacks. That's right. You're That's, dead. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, one of our friends went to play an, on, a game, and he's already back, so something terribly happened. He's like, oh, I'll catch up with Ed later. And he's like, oh, I'm back. I'm like, you played D&D already? It's been... 30 minutes. Well, that, that's what I love. And, I, and I, I think it may have been mentioned on one of your interviews. I can't remember. Whereas the great thing about... No, I think it was in a recent article I read about, about old school D&D, which is the great thing about old school players is that, it, you know, if they die, they just start rolling up a new character at the table. They're fine with that. They, 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 they don't walk out being unhappy. They're like, okay, this is an opportunity to roll up a new character. So one thing, um, you know, uh, besides Forgotten Realms when, when it came out and this... 1E changed to 2E. You know, the great effect to me when, when our group finally fell apart and was harder to play games in the 90s, we played the Gold Box, then Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights, all these. Uh, so what's your thoughts on video games? Because that is the challenge of how do you create an evocative story, but you have to have rules because the computer has to adjudicate that. And you know, your, your system has been, your, your background has been used for 30-something years. What's your, what's your relationship to video games and how do you think it's been going? I have done tiny bits of work on almost all of them. And by tiny bits of work, I mean things like I was asked to write up 40 titles for books that you could find on the shelf in the library in this one room. Okay? So nothing to do with game mechanics and gameplay. And usually very little to do with storyline. Usually tiny little details. Sometimes more. Like uh, Turbine did a uh, Haunted Halls of Evening Star thing. And I got to do the narration for it and so on. So I went into a studio and did the narration and that was fun. Um, but there has always been a limitation of a computer, always will be, what the computer can handle. And I mean, I remember the earliest computer games, the narrative text-based ones, when all the screens were in incapable of graphics and it was just command line prompts. Right. And it was like it was like pick up lantern cannot pick up lantern, pick up lantern cannot pick up lantern, drop pole pick up lantern pick up lantern. You know, <laughs> you know when they were that level. Um, and then even those had cute things you could do with them. There was this so-called dirty game called Leather Goddesses of Phobos, which is command line interface. Yeah. And it has jokes in it, as also, and it's how you can use a very limited format and come up with actually quite um, fun things that aren't so often the lady or the tiger problem. And the lady or the tiger problem is if you make the wrong choice, you're dead. Right there, you don't have enough clues, you don't have enough way back. It's just you're at the whim of the game designer. If you choose the left-hand door as opposed to the right-hand door, you die. Ah, the end. Start over. You know, it's like, oh, come on, guys. Don't waste my time. You know, how am I enjoying this game? You know, so from the very beginning, there have been limitations in the computer games, which have always frustrated me. From the, whether it was the, you can only go here, you can only do this, you can't pass beyond this room unless you somehow figure out how to do the right thing and get the right token or, or the, he tells you the right thing. And how would you figure that out? Oh, you find out from somebody else who's played it. Oh, that's how I get it. I remember um, a, a gorgeous game came out early on from Lucasfilm called Loom. Mm -hmm. 
I could never figure out how to get off the island at the beginning. <laughs> you know, it just you can't go on, you know, that sort of thing. And there were tons of games like that. And the Realms games, they weren't, none of them I think were that bad because they had basic tactical stuff. And there were things, the, the really early SSI games, they were a bit clunky at times. When you did the combat, it stopped the game and it put up, here's the orcs and yeah. here are you. Oh, I'm going to fire my bow. Screen goes blank. Arrow goes across the screen. And you're going, oh. But I mean, that was what the computer could handle at that time. And what I see now with gorgeous movie uh, cutscenes or cartoons is what we called them in the industry. But, you know, the little scene that's all beautifully animated and could be straight out of a movie. Um, they've been getting better and better. And I still will always kick against the frustrating limitations of no computer can be as good as a human dungeon master in making judgment calls because a really cool D&D game is all about nuance and judgment and acting. And the computer just can't do that yet. But now we have computers that can um, look gorgeous, can be very evocative. If you're running across the landscape in Skyrim, for instance, yeah. it can be really, uh, you know, and... One of the things that uh, Jeff Grubb went to work for World of Warcraft, um, the, those people, and at, sometimes he'd show me a level that wasn't open yet. Not to play in, just to walk around, which is what I wanted to do, walk around it. Because I'm not a brilliant young kid. I have carpal tunnel syndrome. I'm slow. I can't fire 36, and win the game. And I'm not interested in it. That isn't an enjoyable process for me. I'm the sort of guy, um, there used to be a, a game Spectre. It was all about a tank, you know, running your tank around, firing at other people. And if you didn't fire at the other, you were supposed to land on this level and charge at these flags and, and get the run over the flags as fast as possible to get off the level, firing at the enemy tanks that were guarding them. And if you just went in the opposite direction, the game would say, come on, man. Come on, man. At you because you were wasting time and I, i'm to me i know i want to explore this world i'm driving my tank as far as it'll go off in this direction what is it what's there of course the answer is there's nothing there they haven't designed anything to be there the game is an arena i'm supposed to you know clobber the other tanks and run over the flags and go on to the next level and the game is chiding me for not following its rules i don't even know its rules because mm. the game didn't tell me that i'm just plunged into the middle of it so i'm always frustrated by the limitations of computers but they are getting with virtual reality and so on scarily good finally you know um i remember the early um first person shooters castle wolfenstein oh, yeah. how frustrating that was because the pixels were so big that you didn't know if you were actually hitting an enemy and you would literally track across to see if he started turning red am i actually hitting him um because the limitations of the game were so much, it's like, oh, this is just frustrating to play. Um, but as the graphics got better, it's not frustrating anymore. But I still, I want to play D&D &D because I want to be around a table with my friends or people who are going to become my friends by the end of the game. I want to interact with those people. I want to ham act. I want to explore things. I want to have time to make decisions, to maybe puzzle out. 
talk to the other people in the party and say, what do you think we should do? I mean, the king looks pretty angry. What do we do? Do we, do we give in? You know, I, I want that chance, that time to, to figure something out. Because otherwise, it's just more stress than real life. Yeah. So why am I playing this game as, a, as an escape valve for real life? I could just go to work, you know. I mean, if you're a lawyer, there's going to be high-stress situations. You're going to have upset people. Why would you want a game that is more than that? You know, that to the nth degree. How is that uh, a, a recreation from your vocation? You know? <laughs> and, and, but I think there's always been a segment of folks, it was in the first DMG, solo adventuring, people wanting to play D&D yep. on their own. And the, and yep. the computer is very patient. If you want to wander the lands yep. for five hours, no one's going to sit there and go, no one cares about this. Let's get to the dungeon. You know, let's, let's, get, let's get the treasure. Yep. And um, you know, I think it's, it's awesome that it's gotten better. And, uh, but still, I think you know, there is that tension between, in its purest sense, and I use open quotes, sitting around the table, the social interaction. Um, but there's, there is a segment of people, one, I've been watching videos of, People taking and solo adventuring, you know, really coming up with books and coming up with their own stories. Just real quick, uh, uh, someone had a quick question. I know Dan's got some more. Um, someone's looking at your Wikipedia page, which of course is gospel, as we all know. Are, are these <laughs> are these really? Uh, you have some odd-looking books attributed to you, at least odd from the title. When the villain comes home and women in practical armor. Are those real <laughs> books that you wrote and or contributed, and what are they? Okay, Gabriel Harbawi and I um, co-edited a bunch of anthologies of short stories. When the villain comes home and when the hero comes home, um, this came from an idea from, from me uh, at an Ad Astra convention in Toronto. Um, what happens afterwards? You know, the, the, the scene in The Lord of the Rings where Sam comes home. Mm-hmm. You know, the last, what's the last line? Well, I'm back, he said. Right. You know, when he comes back to his lady love, Rose. his wife. Rose, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's all over. Um, that's, we wanted to focus in what happens after the big battle. Can you go home again? And, of course, that was the big thing for Frodo. The realms have, has been saved, but not for me. You can't go home again because home has been changed so much. and that is what those anthologies are about. The, the woman at Yaha, Unfortunately, yes, good. We had, we had yeah, the, right. In celebration of 1980, I tried to find yeah. the TSR 1980 calendar, but I couldn't find it. So I bought the Tolkien calendar. Unfortunately, the last one is not, is the scouring of the Shire. <laughs> so it's a little more right. depressing. Yeah. Final, but sorry, I interrupted you. I couldn't help it. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Yeah. And, and woman in practical armor, um, Gabrielle was very much, wouldn't it be wonderful to have an anthology where women are the heroes? And the whole point of the title, Woman in Practical Armor, is instead of babes falling out of bikinis and going into battle like Red Sonia, wearing a chainmail bikini that leaves most of their body vulnerable to any weapon thrust, what happens if we have realistic depictions of women as the heroes so the joke was woman in practical armor and we were going to do a whole series of those um about every like wizards and clerics and so on um but 
we that we haven't gotten around to that yet, and we have other ideas that we want to play with. But that's what those are. Those are anthologies of short stories by all sorts of talented writers, um, and I just co-edited them. And so now, now the wiki the Wikipedia page is missing, as you know, all of my game writing. Yeah. So there's like three three hundred. Um, books and about a thousand articles missing off that page. It just has the quote literary stuff. And the last work it 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 says that you worked on was fairy tales and myth, an anthology creatures from fairy tales and myth. Uh, you know what was the genesis of that, and what are you working on now? Because I'm sure your fans are are wanting to see what twenty excuse me nineteen eighty slash twenty twenty looks You're gonna like. You're going to confuse Fred. him if you call it nineteen eighty. That's right. He's like well, we lived did that already. So yeah. what, what what does uh, okay. what's your last work look like, and what are you planning on for twenty twenty? Okay, um, at the moment I'm recuperating from this hard thing. Sure. So I'm I'm working on a Rocket Age adventure. And Rocket Age is a game, um, Ken Spencer wrote and designed it. He has a company called Why Not Games. Rocket Age was originally published by Cubicle 7. Um, Rocket Age is now being redone as a Kickstarter with 5th edition rules. Okay. Hmm. Rather than its own game rule system. And I'm writing in a, uh, it's a Kickstarter goal. Um, I'm belatedly writing because of this heart thing. Um, Bold Brigands of the Belt, which is an asteroid field or asteroid belt adventure. Um, Rocket Age is really cool. It's pulp science fiction. So, you know, you go into space wearing a glass goldfish bowl over your head, yeah. and you fire ray guns, and you get you get transmissions on the radio, and Tesla is around and so on. Well, And there's a Fourth Reich hidden on Mars or Venus or somewhere, and it's all in the solar system. Okay, so awesome. it's that cool pulp science fiction and i'm writing that for ken i have just finished a novel set in the fate of the orange universe called the one-eyed king and when it will be published depends on his kickstarter and that last thing we talked about the creatures of myth legend there um that is for the same game system fate of the norns there's a gentleman in quebec in canada called andrew volkoskis and he has a game system. His, his company is called Pendlehaven. And his game system is called Fate of the Norns. And it's Norse Viking role-playing. And he goes full in-depth on the mythology and works out. Um, when the Finns talk about this creature, when the Norse talk about this same creature, okay, they contradict each other in small ways, okay, I go to all the sources in the originals. I work them all out. What is the best thing? And I write it up as a game thing. So what he did for Fate of the Norns is he has three or four rule books. And by the way, the cool thing about Fate of the Norns, when you're going to do something, you throw runes. Mm. It's called weirding. You throw runes to see how successful you are. And for casting the magic, when doing things that involve your skills. Anyway, um, I wrote this novel... For the game system, and it's about a king who sacrificed his one of his eyes to Odin because Odin is the one-eyed god. So when he, as a teenager, when he started to worship Odin, he he he, he had a blot or sacrifice. He ripped out one of his eyes and sacrificed it to Odin, so that he's now the one-eyed king. 
and this is this is about the real world in our real world the vikings con- conquered dublin it was called Asclias back then they conquered dublin and occupied it for a few years and this is the fantasy version of that when the one-eyed king is ruling in dublin so that'll be published when he gets around to the kickstarter that creatures book that we were talking about when he did all of these critters up he did them up in his own rule system but he redid it for fifth edition and then he did a version of the book and that's the version of the book i worked on with michelle franklin another writer who's in quebec and yet another writer james kerr who did the the game system and what we did is what is it like to encounter one of these critters so in other words we did D&D ecology articles right. only for this Fate of the Norns game. But instead of hard game rules, that's in those other books, We James Kerr wrote up everything that's known from mythology about this monster. Here's what they try and do to you. This is what they eat, that sort of stuff. And then Michelle or I, or Andrew himself, Andrew Volkoskis, wrote a short story of an encounter with one monster. Usually it's I am Eric the Red, and this time when I went up against the Fomorians or whatever. But sometimes it's from the point of view of the monster. Oh, okay. You know that you know, that famous John Gardner novel. You know Grendel. Grendel's had a little accident. So may you all. You know. <laughs> you know. Sometimes we sometimes we take the monster side. So that's what that is. That is a book just of stories. So it say it'll come to the Kelpie, for instance, or the Fomorians, or whatever, um, and it'll say, "Here's what they are in mythology," and then you'll get a story of an encounter with them. Awesome. So no game. So in that book, yeah. in in his recovery, he's done more than I've done in three or four years. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I feel pretty. Sp- Thank you for depressing us. That's that's great. We've got a lot of work to do. I mean, we're we're sitting here going, I got to write a I got to write a memo at work and I'm like, "Oh, that's a lot of work." Right? That's I don't feel like doing that. So, that's and uh, during Go ahead. During my recovery, I have reviewed and blurbed eight novels by other people. I have written six short stories. I have written a ton of columns for EN World. I have done behind-the-scenes work for Wizards and other people on stuff. I have written two novels, and I have written three game adventures. And remember when we when we were talking about the writing advice? Just do it. Just sit down and do it. Yeah. Now, we're not all as fast as I am. It is not an arms race. Nobody wants to know what you could pump out this morning. They don't know that. They just pick up the finished product and is it crap or is it fun or is it in the middle and flawed? Take the time you need to take to do the thing that you're proud of. Just one, one more question from uh, online. Uh, Nicknack95, is there, is there any way for you to release the original map of the Moonshay? Um, legally, no. Mm. However... If you can get yourself to Gamehole Con okay. in Madison, Wisconsin, oh, yeah, every November. We're very familiar with okay. that. Yep. Okay, Alex Kammer purchased the, it's not the original map of the realms, but 
Okay, I had a map of the realms done in pencil. Yep. I still have it. It's right behind me here. And um, I sent it to Jeff Grubb with a one-page guide that said, here's how you tape it all together. I think there are 24 panels, 55 pages in all, because so you could read my crabbed pencil writing. There were map tags where I'd take the uh, sheet of paper corresponding to a drawn sheet of paper, and I would type all the names that were I'd hand-drawn on the map in typing so he could have a chance in heck of reading them. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, here's how they all go together. And when they got to TSR, he taped them all together, and then he took color magic markers, and he put blue for the outlines of coasts and so on, so you could tell what was going on. And when he, he needed to highlight somebody, something he could read, he would take a yellow magic marker and just draw a highlight behind it so he could read it. That map which had been handed down to Steve Shend when he became traffic cop of the rumps and finally to Julia Martin, Alex Kammer purchased. It is on display in the game hole, which is Alex Kammer owns at least two bars in Middleton, Wisconsin, the suburb of Madison. One of them is a historic, um, an American historic roadside tavern. The upstairs, which I presume was originally the servants' quarters, the attic, the eaves, is the game hole where he and his friends play. It is, everybody should see it. It's crammed full of memorabilia, original copies of this and that, all the, the books. He, he owns everything. It's gorgeous. He has a wonderful gaming table that he bought from Monty Cook um, where you can play around and so on. And on display there is that map. And you can see my original moonshades. They occupy one eight and a half by eleven panel of the map. They look rather like the Outer Hebrides, or they look rather like Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea. And she copied the basic format, not the specifics of Earthsea, from the Outer Hebrides. It's this sea of islands, uh -huh. mm. okay, small islands, and that was my original moonshades. So if you go to Gen GameholeCon, you can see it. Like if you tour the on the Thursday night, he he throws open the game hole for tours, and if you get there, you can stare at the original moonshades all you want. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we've we've got, we've got to make that sojourn up there. Uh, hopefully, maybe this October. I know uh, Gary Khan's a little bit of a uh, problem. Uh, what other questions do you have for? Uh, I just have I just have one final question. You've been very kind with your yes, time. Yes, thank you for your time. Today, yes, Ed. we appreciate. Oh, it. no problem, no problem at all. Well, one one final question for me: um, Did you ever go through other person's adventures? So you, it sounds like you obviously did a lot of homebrew with the realms. Did you ever run other people's adventures? Uh, you know, publish modules. Oh yeah, many times. Okay. Yeah. Any any so any favorites from back in the day? I I know that you were a reader of White Dwarf, which had a lot of mini adventures that I'm a big fan of. Any in particular that that uh, were your favorites? Hmm. For Call of Thulu, Masks of Nyarlathotep, the big giant super adventure. Hmm. Um, I really enjoyed running that. Um. Uh, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks uh, for D&D, because I could have fun playing with that. Um, the Teagle Manor of the original, which was the giant sprawling haunted house that Judges Guild did, um, that was more a setting than a, uh, a, a coherent adventure. 
the Temple of Ra, Cursed by Set, um, and Dark Tower. Um, I think Paul Jaquais did both of those. Now Janelle Jaquais. Um, I'm trying to remember. You see, most of my favorite things are little things, like one-shot, one-night mini-dungeons. Um, and there are quite a few... Uh, I, and, and I did a, quite a few of them as playtests. Um, the original Spelljammer playtest that, that Jeff wanted me to run, the, this, this far-out wacky physics where the ship generates its own gravity field. So the, the, the sentry is on deck smoking, and he's not supposed to be. And he sees the boss coming. So he takes a drag on his cigarette and throws it to his right. And boss comes by and says, anything to report? No, sir. Quiet. Quiet as the ether. Good. Passes on. And all that time, the cigarette's been going around the ship. And it comes up and he just reaches out and catches it again. Oh, my boss is going to look back. So he throws it again and it goes around the ship. That's sort of cool, fun physics. Because Jim Ward uh, came up with these ideas that during a Spelljammer battle, they'd have bone balls. They'd have skeletons, as in the D&D monster, but they'd have them in balls and they'd fire them out of cannon and they'd land on the decks of the enemy ship, unfold and start attacking with their swords. Like a, like a <laughs> space Sinbad, you know, back in the day, uh, Jason, you know, with yeah. the stop action. Yeah, that's awesome. So those sort of adventures and the mystery adventures where you had to solve a mystery, sort of like an escape room, but, but a and ds there were quite a few of those over the years where you had to you had a shape-shifting monster that was hiding because it was the monster was intelligent enough to look at the party of eight or nine people and say, I'm going to get murdered if it comes to a fight, so I'm going to hide. And your job was to find out, explore all these rooms, read all the stuff, the half-finished stuff from the people who'd been killed by the monster, figure out where the monster was and, and deal with it. Those sort of small adventures. So they aren't famous published ventures, the, the playtests of the time. Um, but by and large, and I had to run tons and tons of RPGA adventures at Gen Con and various things, but I usually ended up writing and running my own or making one up on the fly. Like if you have six kids brought up to your table, none of them have ever played D&D before, and the, there's one loudmouth guy and there's five shy girls... Mm -hmm. You're not going to just throw your prepared adventure at them. You're going to change things and make it up as you go along because you need to find a way to occupy the loudmouth and to bring the shy ones into the into the the play so they all have fun and not allow the loudmouth to dominate, but still let him have a good time. You know. And so you are as a dungeon master, you're just changing things on the fly, and that's normally what I did. I just, you know, it was, it was to have fun. You've got two hours or four hours or however long the slot is to have fun and end in a rousing climax with a victory, you know. And it's, yeah, and have them leave there. I mean, that's great advice. That's the so, lesson. Have fun. Absolutely. Well, Ed, um, we thank you for your time. Uh, I know that we're so glad that My you, pleasure. We're so glad that you're feeling better. And you know, if you if uh, glad to hear about your if you could uh, either it's it's you're at. At the Edverse on Twitter, is there any other way people yep. can contact you that you would like, or just Twitter, or what? What other ways? Uh, I, I'm on Facebook, uh, 
Ed Greenwood homepage, and if you see a, a photograph of um, me in a red shirt with my wife Jenny, and she's punching me in the tummy, and we're both laughing, it's that Ed Greenwood. Okay. Or there's there, there's also a fans of Ed Greenwood page, and there's the Forgotten Realms archives page as well, and and those three Facebook pages I usually see all the posts on, and I will usually respond if I can get a chance because it will notify me in in an email. And yeah, and Twitter is the best way for a fast one. Um, that's usually the best way to contact me because I am too busy to live online. I couldn't get any writing done if I right. did live online. And I'm living online anyway. So, <laughs> Well, you're very responsive. I mean, I've seen your you know, folks posting uh, you know, questions and you're within a short time. I, I know some of it's because you're in recovery, but uh, you know, it's, it's something you take, you take the work that you have birthed to the to the world very seriously, and I think your fans are very appreciative of that. Um, and so you've got stuff that's coming out. This module that you're proof you're editing. You've got the the book. Uh, they can get that on Amazon and the Kickstarter. Is what's do you, how can they get to the some of the Kickstarters that you're working on? Is, Ooh boy, um, yeah. I would look up Andrew Volkoskis. Okay. Um, just under his name, that seems to be how it comes up on Kickstarter. Um, and, uh, Rocket Age, I would just look up Rocket Age. Okay. Um, I, I recently did a novel for, um, Folklore, The Affliction, which was, uh, a Kickstarter from a couple of years ago. Greenbrier Games is publishing the line now. Um, there's one, there's one, um, Folklore, The Affliction novel called The Whispering Skull. And that's me. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> I wrote that. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I'm, I'm still working on stuff in the realms every day. Um, and uh, let's see, there's, there's, there's other novels and stuff I'm working on now, um, but I can't talk about them. <laughs> well, you have, an, you have an open invitation. You, you know, we're connected on, on Twitter. So if you say, hey, I want to talk about this book or this idea that you want to promote, we would be more than happy to... To have you on and talk about whatever you uh, want because you're such a treasure, um, and I hate to say that in like the ancient term, but you know you're a living thing. Gosh. That, yes, exactly. Uh, well, you know we we we've been very fortunate. We, as Dan said, we kind of disappeared from uh, role playing and really just went to become adults and not realize we left some of our adult or us when we left 30 years ago, and we're just rediscovering. And I think there's a lot of folks who are over the last few years a real thing that that is not, you know, we didn't have to put away childish things. We, we actually could carry that forward. Um, That's right. Yeah. And so this has been, uh, you know, almost an awakening. We're relearning things. You're like, I've been doing this for 40 years. And some of us are like, this is brand new. So we're, we're like Han Solo coming out of carbon. Right. Rain. We've, we've did, we're out of the deep freeze. What uh, forgotten realms? What happened? Wait, I remember it from realm? like, it just been released. Yeah. It just released. Wait, you had to, it was, it was a success. I'm, right. I'm There's more than Elminster. What happened? Right. What? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but that's the thing. You guys went away for that many years and Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson both died. Yeah. Yes. That's and right. now, now you can't, now you can't talk to and, them. And, it's too late. And here's the shame <laughs> about it is we live in Orlando, and so Dave Arneson was teaching. We actually game now right across the street from Full Sail University where he taught. And so what a shame right. that, that Dave Arneson was was in the same town right. that we were. Yeah, and we, we missed the opportunity to yeah. talk to him. So, But our kids, you know, I have my youngest is 17. He's playing fifth edition, so... You know, it's a generational thing, and yeah, um, that's that's when the most exciting far, part is that people 
are, are getting to embrace and they're yearning for the genesis of it. I, th I don't think it's just, uh, and it's just, you know, you have living history. We're now old enough where uh, my two sons, they talk about things and it's like they're discovering the 1990s. I'm like, I lived it. No, that's not how it is. So it's very important um, yeah. about how we yeah. move that forward. So There was no internet. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Uh, like when I went to visit my grandparents, they were on a party line tele oh, telephone yeah. line. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Ed, thank you. Television was black and white only. Right. And, and if you were the youngest, you had to change the channel and hold the rabbit ears. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. And there, you get to stay. We there. date ourselves. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember right. when there was no such thing as a die 30. That's right. Die 30. Black. Well, what is that, this thing? The, exactly. More crazy time. Yeah. Well, Ed, uh, best wishes. Godspeed to your recovery. And. Uh, um, you know, we we look to see you. Are, are you are you planning to go to Gen Con uh, this year? Is that is that too far in advance, or still kind of the only the only convention that isn't a day trip for me because I, I I'm my wife's nurse yeah. as well, and she's eighty four. Ah. Um, so I, I have to get back home every night. So I go to local conventions in Ontario, um, Phantasm up in Peterborough, Fan Expo um, at in Toronto. And a few others, but the only one that I'm hoping to get to is Gamehole Con this November. Okay, we'll see closer to Gamehole Con if I really can. Yeah, well, that's you know, but yeah. Well, yeah. definitely, we you know, a Canadian trip. But we have dear friends in Canada. We have a number of. In fact, we're going to give out a, a title to one of our uh, dear right. friends today, so we can. And he's in the uh, Ontario province, which is small. I mean, it's not that big from. We, us Americans, geography is really Japan. not. Is not, that right? It's, I think it's, it's near <laughs> Santa Claus and over by Tokyo or something like that. We, so I'm sure if we land somewhere in the province, you, we'll just come see you. It won't be a big deal. Sure, yeah. Just take the entire eastern seaboard of the United States and drop it into Ontario, and you could sail around the outside still. <laughs> exactly. It's that big. Wow. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much. Uh, again, you. we appreciate your time, and for, our, for the folks who are listening, um, they've been effusive in their praise and just really recollecting all the things, both in the past and now that they've done. Have a great day, and I hope 2020 uh, suits you well, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Let's do it again. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. We Appreciate accept it. your offer. We accept your offer, absolutely. We have a contract. <laughs> all right. That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Handshake deal. Right. Yeah, there you awesome. Go. <laughs> have a good day, Ed. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks, Ed. Okay, thanks. Bye. 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 This has been a Bushy Puppy production. All rights reserved.